big news events and ordinary folks doing extraordinary things. NPR, then, now, and next. Thank you for listening to WAMU 88.5, Washington's NPR news station. Hey, that's it. That's all for me. I'm Jeffrey James, wishing you another fantastic summer week here and also the beginning of a July 4th weekend. We'll talk to you next week. This is WAMU Washington. In HD at 88.5 and at WAMU.org, where it is 7 o'clock. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and before June slips away, we want to note that it's the month for weddings, the start of summer, and in most other years, the Tony Awards. Alas, not in 2021, though, so we're going to do our part to salute Broadway with a visit to the theater on First Nighter, a backstage mystery on Broadway is My Beat, and a classic story from the king of Broadway writers on the Damon Runyon Theater. Plus, a cowboy role for Charles Boyer with George Burns and Gracie Allen, and detective work on The Lineup, Dragnet, and Gunsmoke. Trauma, thrills, action, comedy. And to get in on it, you need to relax, put away the concerns and cares of last week, and put off any worries about the week to come. Instead, settle in and put your imagination to the test here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. If you've listened to more than a few of the adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, he's undoubtedly taken you on a visit to his favorite fishing spot, Cottonwood Cove on Lake Mojave, near Las Vegas. Well, we were dismayed to learn this week that the National Park Service has closed Cottonwood Cove due to concerns over high bacteria levels and potential health impacts. We found out thanks to listeners Nathaniel and Michael Schultz, and we'll post a link to the story they sent from Nevada Station KTNV on our Facebook page. Somehow I'm glad our man didn't live to see this day. But he was around on April 2nd, 1961, for something called the Two's a Crowd Matter. It comes from CBS and the series, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar... Paul Ferris here. Ferris. That's right. And where is here? New York City. Oh, yeah. Worldwide Mutual Insurance. Right. Well, hi, Paul. I haven't talked to you since that little problem with Tony Valentine. Well, then you remember him. Are you kidding? When that little punk found out I was on his trail, he made a lot of big talk about getting me before I could get him. Yeah, I know. Johnny, and I finally what... turned him over to the police there in your fair city. He started making with the threats all over again. But as long as he's safely behind the bars now... But he was, Why Johnny, worry about but... him? What's the... What did you say? I said Tony Valentine was behind bars, but a few days ago, he and a con named Sandy Reinhardt broke out of that little upstate prison. No kidding. A couple of nights ago, they pulled a red light robbery on a dark side street right here in the middle of the city. Tony's old racket, huh? Yeah. And to top things off, they pulled a gun and killed the driver of the car they'd stopped, a man named Barton 
Osborne. Tony Valentine is not a killer. One of them did it. Well, why call on me, Paul? Isn't this a police matter? Osborne is, or was, one of our policyholders. Oh, I see. A policy for close to $75,000. So when the heirs tell us to get on the ball, we get on the ball. Also, Johnny, since you know Valentine, you know his tricks how to handle him. Okay. I'll see what I can do. The CBS Radio Network brings you Bob Reddick in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. The Worldwide Mutual Insurance Company, New York City office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of... The two's a crowd matter. So Tony Valentine, one of the original red light bandits, was on the loose again. The case I thought I'd solved a couple of years ago was far from closed. Especially now with a killing involved. But before getting into the old expense account, let me tell you the rest of my conversation with Paul Ferris of the insurance company. Now, now, wait a minute, Jimmy. No, Paul. In spite of his threats to me, Tony Valentine never had a reputation as a killer. Nonetheless, Johnny... Sure, he'd drive around at night flashing red light at expensive-looking cars, posing as the highway patrol. When they stopped him, he'd wave a pistol at them. But he was never known to pull the trigger. Well, maybe the police theory is right. But the killing was done by Sandy Reinhardt, the car to escape with him. What police, Paul? Well, when you get down here, contact Lieutenant Randolph Singer. Randy Singer, 18th Precinct? That's right. Well, fine. He's an old pal of mine. He'll be able to give you far more detail than I can. Right, Paul. I'm on my way. <laughs> Expense account item one. Eight dollars plane fare to New York. Item two, 650 cab fare into 18th Precinct Police Headquarters. And when I barged in on him, Lieutenant Randy Singer raised his hands in mock horror. Oh, no. No, no, not you again. Hi, Randy. You mind if I sit down? Well, I do if you're down here on account of Tony Valentine. How did you guess? Johnny, why don't you leave these things to us, hmm? I mean, just because you happened to be lucky in tapping Valentine once before and without getting your head shot off... Lucky, eh? What else? How else did you ever solve any of those wacky insurance cases? Sheer luck, that's all. <laughs> Randy, maybe you have a point there. Sure, sure. I mean, just because none of our boys could find him and you just happened to stumble over him. And bring him in for you on a silver platter. I wish you had, Johnny, all neatly stuffed with lead. And we wouldn't have to be out hunting for him again. Only, Johnny, the one we really want bad is Sandy Reinert. Because he did the killing. You sure of that? Absolutely. He's the one that had the gun that helped them engineer their escape out of the pen. I see. And one of my boys found that gun down a sewer near the scene of the holdup just a little while ago. Reinert's fingerprints all over it. No Prince of Tony. Any leads on either of them, Randy? Well, a man answering Tony's description is known to have taken a plane to Oklahoma City within a few hours of the caper. A man of his description. Yeah. And when I showed this photo with Tony to the clerk at the airline, she was positive it was the same man. So I formally requested that a warrant and a copy of this be sent out there so if they see him, they can pick him uh, Yeah, what is it, Conroy? Special for you, Lieutenant. Oh, okay, thanks. 
Now, let's see what this is. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said Oklahoma. Yeah, that's right. Well, what's the matter with you, Randy? Plenty, but that's beside the point. No, listen, don't you remember? That's where Tony was to go when I latched onto him before. Overton, Oklahoma. Overton? Oh, yeah. And I still think that's where he stashed a lot of the loot from some of his earlier jobs. Well, maybe I better get that out to him. I'll send him a full report. All right, you send him a report, Randy. And you can also tell him that's where they'll find me. You're going out to Oklahoma? Right. And I'm taking along this photo of Tony. Now, listen, John. And if I'm lucky, if I make good plane connections, I'll be there by the time you mail your report. So, Randy... Will you wait? Now, look at this. Hmm? This note that Conroy... Here, just listen, huh, Johnny? Yeah, Sergeant Mike Thomason, detective detail at the station... Never heard of him. Well, you should have from your insurance company. Why? Because he's a nephew of that old man who was killed. So he stands to share in the old man's will, his insurance. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Uh, No, I don't know. I don't know. That's beside the point. Is it? The point is that Mike doesn't know Sandy Reinitz, the killer, that he's been picked up. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, you see? Right here in this special. Yeah, I see him. In the meantime, what has he done? Uh, he being Mike, the police sergeant. He being Mike, the police sergeant. Well? Taken a couple of weeks off, and he's gone out to Oklahoma. I mean, following that tip from the airline. Now, get this, Johnny. Mike is one of the deadliest shots on the force, and he's crazy mad about that murder. You mean that if he gets out there and finds Tony before I do... He'll kill him for sure. I mean that, Johnny. Mike's a good cop, but he's too worked up over this. And if he still thinks Tony may have killed that uncle of his... Well, go ahead. Go on out there. To save the life of the man I'm gunning for. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay, Randy, why not? Hi, this is Dennis James. To make a point about reliable, effective Kellogg's All brand. Repeat after me, please. What do you want when you need brand? What do you want when you need brand? Reliability. Reliability. Now, what do you get in Kellogg's All Brand? What do you get in Kellogg's All Brand? Reliability. Right. You see, Kellogg's All Brand is the reliable brand that millions depend on for the effectiveness they want. It's the real Battle Creek formula that brings you more brand bulk in every serving, more of the vital brand bulk that helps you keep regular. Kellogg's All Brand is also low in calories. And mighty pleasant tasting. You can trust Kellogg's for that. The crisp toasted shreds have the kind of good bran muffin flavor that most folks are partial to. So next time you're shopping, get Kellogg's All Bran and you'll get reliability. That's what you get in Kellogg's All Bran. Reliability. Maybe Randy Singer's alarm was uncalled for. All he had to do was get the Oklahoma City police on the phone, tell them to pick up Tony Valentine to keep Sergeant Mike Thomason away from him, and then arrange for Tony's extradition back to New York. And Thomason, off-duty, acting on his own, couldn't do a thing about it. If, that is, if Tony stayed in Oklahoma City. And I didn't think he would. I thought he'd head for Overton. Far away from Oklahoma City's jurisdiction, a mere pinpoint on the map that most likely wouldn't have a police department of its own. If Tony were there, if Mike were to find him there, nobody would ever see him again, would ever know what happened to him. Unless somehow I could get to Tony Valentine first. Okay, then, expense account item three is six fifty for a cab to the airport. Item four, 
8950 Plain Fair. Oklahoma City. Center of the mad rush for free prairie land back in 1899. Where in one day, some 10,000 people staked their claims in newly opened territory. Now, it's a clean, modern city. Something over 300,000. With skyscrapers crowding its central business district. And oil and gas wells crowding in around its edges. A city of iron and steel plants. Clothing, furniture factories, stockyards and meatpacking. Oil and cotton processing, electrical equipment. And the gamut of recreational and cultural facilities, country clubs and fine homes. But despite the change in time zone, it was late afternoon when the plane set down at Will Rogers Field. And there I spent item five, 50 bucks deposit on a rental car. And I tore onto the town, the police headquarters. No, Mr. Dollar. We haven't turned up a single lead on this Tony Valentine. I expect he must have just passed on through. Okay. Now, Captain, did you yourself talk to Lieutenant Singer of the New York Police Department? Yep. He told me about Mike Thomason. Sergeant Thomason. Has he been here? Have you seen him? Mr. Dollar, he spent two solid days combing this town for Tony Valentine. And? Well, he's acting kind of unofficially, isn't he? He sure is. I suppose you can't exactly blame him. His own uncle getting murdered. And, of course, his not knowing it wasn't Valentine who did it. But what about Mike? Well, let's see. About 15, 20 minutes ago, he came in and told me that he was giving up around here. But that he had some other ideas on Valentine's possible whereabouts. Oh? Mm-hmm. And that he was leaving town to follow him up. Leaving for where? Well, that he wouldn't say. Oh, fine. Except that it's way outside our bailiwick. That if any other authorities needed to be notified, he'd take care of such notification himself. Captain, how do I get to the town of Overton? Overton? A town? Well, <laughs> there's a kind of a railroad, Sergeant. Maybe a couple of sleeping cars for a section gang. Where? Maybe an oil-loading rig and a water tank. Where? Oh, I'd say it's about uh, 75, maybe 80 miles north, north and west of here. Okay. There's an old abandoned oil well there, too, and a shack to go with it. Yeah, well, thanks. Bleeding Heart Number 1, they called it. What did you say? Well, I said they called yeah, it... Ble- bleeding Heart. A Valentine. And his name is Tony Valentine. You mean you think... No wonder he here. picked it as a place to stash away some of his loot. Or maybe it was owned by his family... All right, Captain, thank you very much. You think maybe his folks own that well? Something like that? I'm thinking a lot of things. I headed north on 74, driving as fast as I dared. And then, a few miles after crossing the Cimarron River, I swung left onto a dirt road that was hard to navigate even with good headlights. And finally, after crossing seemingly endless miles of barren prairie, I saw the light in a railroad shack one side of a huge water tank and a cattle loading platform. I looked through the window. Inside the shack, sleeping sprawled over a sort of desk with a telegraph instrument on it, was an old man.
Good evening. Howdy. Uh, listen, I'm looking for a man. Uh, you, uh, the police or something? Would you like to see my credentials? Well, uh, better no, still, I... look at this, this picture. Oh. Uh, on the bottom here, it says New York Police. That's right. Well, have you seen this man around here? Well, yes, I have, sir. When? Where is he now? Well, I seen him just about sundown, heading over towards the old bleeding heart number one. Where's oh, that? Why anybody should want to monkey around that Where place, is it? Place I, huh? Oh, oh. Uh, just follow that road alongside the tracks for about two miles, and there you are. All right. Now listen to me and listen carefully. Uh, yes, sir. Has there been anybody else around here asking about this fellow in the picture? No, sir. Not that I know about. Now, you're sure of that? Well, that I am, sir. Okay. Now, there is another man looking for him. And he may come around here tonight. Watch out for him. He's a killer. Killer? That's right. Now, he may show you credentials that look as though he's from the New York Police Department. Don't you believe him? Oh, you mean he's what you call a, a phone? Now, you understand me? Don't believe anything he tells you. Oh, okay, sir. And above okay. all, do not, under any circumstances, let him know that you've seen the man in this picture around here. Well, now, look here. Unless yes, you I... want to be a party to a murder. Yes. Oh. oh, okay, sir. I'll do anything you say. All right. Now, I'm going out there. And I... You're not going anywhere. Uh, look, he's, he's got a gun. That's right. Idiot, make a move. I pull a trigger. obvious that the man standing there at the door, covering us for the police 38, was not Tony Valentine. It was also obvious that he didn't know who I was, but I knew better than to tell him. Once he realized I was there to keep him from finding Valentine, well, put it this way, there was a bad look in his eye, almost a mad look, and he held the gun. Mine was still in my pocket. What's more, I knew better than to use it on a police officer when a hastily pulled shot might be a fatal one. By seeming only to shift the weight on my feet, I edged closer to the telegraph table with its old-fashioned heavy glass lamp on it. Don't move! I, I didn't move. I mean you! Until I get used to the light in here and make sure. Just trying to relax. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, go ahead and relax. You're not the punk I'm looking for. Now, oh, thanks. Now, if you just put down that gun... You'll try and jump me, that it? Tell me this, wise guy. You know who Tony Valentine is? Valentine? Look, I'm new around here. You know, just driving through. Yeah? When'd you get here? Just a couple of minutes ago. That's who, mister. That's who now. Yeah, old man. Well, do you know him? Uh, Valentine? Yeah, yeah. Tony Valentine. Here, look. Here's his picture. Well, I said, do you know him? No, no, sir, but I know who you are. You're a killer. What are you talking about? And your name is Sergeant Mike Thomason. What? Who are you? I said, who are you? Come on, wise guy, talk. You're a killer. That's what you are, a killer. Shut up, you. That's why you come here with that gun to kill somebody. Shut up. Now, listen, wise guy. Oh, no, you don't. When he knocked down the old man, I pushed the lamp off the table. Die for his knees. 
Shots came far too close for comfort. One of them grazed the top of my head. I locked his gun hand under my arm and shoved a fist into his midsection and then came up to his chin with everything I had. After making sure the old man would recover, I got into my car and I drove out the road beside the railroad tracks. Thanks to the moonlight, I could see the oil derrick for the bleeding heart number one and the shack beside it in plenty of time. So I turned off the headlights and I drove cautiously to within about 500 yards of it. And I ditched the car in a gully and then quietly went the rest of the way on foot. The little building was nothing more than a tool shed and there was a lantern burning somewhere inside. Peering in through a dirty window, I could see Tony Valentine. He was on his knees placing a plank on the floor. Beside him was an open bag, and it was loaded with money. Slowly, carefully, I pulled out my gun, edged my way around to the door, and then... Kick it over! Dollar! That's right, Tony. So this is where you hid away all your loot, huh? Johnny Dollar. Guess I should have known you'd be after me again. Yeah, you should have known. Got a gun? You know I never use no gun. All right now, Tony. And listen, Dollar. Listen about that killing back in New York? I know, Tony. I know all about it. Yeah, what do you know? I know Sandy Reinhardt did it. That's right. And the cops have nabbed him for it. And I'm clean. And I'm all right. You are? Well, sure, Dollar. Look, don't you see? I, I was afraid they'd catch me and burn me for it. That's the reason I come out here. Get everything I had so I could skip the country. Not a chance. What do you mean, not a chance? I'm going to give up easy and go back to New York with you just because you're holding a gun on me? You've got a choice. Oh, yeah? What is it? Go on back with me and without any trouble. Or I can leave you up to Mike Thomason. So who's Mike? Uh, Thomason? That killer cop? That's right. That man was his uncle. He thinks you killed him. But I didn't. Nothing you or I can tell him will ever convince him otherwise. And he's out here, Tony, gunning for you. I don't believe it. So you have your choice. Go back with me and take whatever they hand you for the jailbreak and holdup. Or be shot down by Mike Thomas. Ah, you're lying. You're trying to trick me. I knocked him out over at the railroad shack, but not for long, so we haven't much time. As a matter of fact, we haven't any time. The car out there. That is Mike Thomason. You got a gun. You gotta stop him, Dollar. Do I? Look, you can see him in the moonlight. With that gun, you can nail him. Would you like to be the cop killer? Oh, no, no. Dollar, he'll come in here and kill me. Well, at this point, he might try to kill both of us. Well, what do we do? He's coming over right, here. Now, shut up, Tony, and be quiet. I know I'm in here with you. Unless you kill him first. I told you, who wants to be a cop killer? But I want to live. Well, so do I. If I could reach that lantern, knock it off the table under this oil soaked floor without him seeing Okay, me. Valentine. I know you're in there. Come on out here with your hands up. Answer him. No. No, I'd do that. You'd kill me. That's right. Maybe I would. Now the lantern. What are you doing with that lantern? It's setting the place on fire. Now the joint's on fire. So now you've got a choice. You stay in there and burn up with it or come out here and take a bullet. Either way, Valentine, you're going to pay for killing that man back in New York. Now, Tony, listen to me. He doesn't know I'm here. Dollar. Go over there on that doorway. No, listen. Now, let him see you. 
He won't pull that trigger unless you try to make a break for it. As long as he sees you, he won't see me go out through that back window. I hope. But there's fire, there's smoke. Get over there where he can see you. He'll kill me. Knowing there wasn't a second to waste because of that fire, I plunged through the window into the night. I ran wide of the shed to get around in back of Mike, hoping and praying his whole attention would be on Tony inside. And it was until I tore into him with a flying sound. You again. It's all right. Talk You knocked him out. Hey, you're okay, Dollar. Sure, I know. And, uh, Dollar, here, I... I guess you better keep his gun. Oh? Well, thanks, Tony. And you think maybe... Maybe me and you better start on back to New York? Before he comes to? Honey, I never did think to find out if Mike Thomason kept his job on the force after that little episode. Tony, of course, is back in the pen. Finishing out a somewhat extended term. Expense account total, including travel back for the two of us, three seventy nine fifty. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here is our star to tell you about next week's story. For next week... Strange vengeance for an even stranger crime. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Reddick, is written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr., musical supervision by Ethel Huber. Heard in our cast were Bill Lipton as Tony Valentine, Larry Haynes as Randy Singer, Roger DeCoven as Mike Thomason, Arthur Cole as the old man, Mandel Kramer as the police captain, and Joseph Julian as Paul Paris. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Art Hanna speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And the two's a crowd matter from the day after April Fool's Day in 1961 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. On this date, in 1888, a woman named Antoinette Perry was born in Denver, Colorado. No one could have foreseen at the time that she would develop a great love for the theater, succeed as an actor and one of the few woman directors on Broadway, help found the American Theater Wing, and, under its auspices, start the Stage Door Canteen that served American troops during World War II, and most prominently, have a set of awards created in her name. The Tony Awards, as we know them, are traditionally given out in this, Ms. Perry's birth month, but these are not traditional times. The Tonys have been postponed until September, but we're paying tribute to Broadway tonight, and we're about to do so with a real Broadway legend, appearing with two other veterans of the Great White Way, Bob Hope and Eddie Cantor. I think we'll just hear a chuckle from Mr. Cantor. In her characteristic hooty contralto voice, here is 
Tallulah Bankhead, host of NBC's The Big Show, in its November 19, 1950 incarnation, singing George M. Cohan's anthem, Give My Regards to Broadway. Since the show began, now you listen to me, Bob and uh, Eddie, I've been trying to do a song, and I'm going to sing it now. You're going to sing? Mm-hmm. I didn't know a foghorn could get a union card. <laughs> what are you singing, Asleep in the Deep? No, it's Give My Regards to Broadway. The first week when I sang it, there were some letters complaining that I was off-key. Oh, don't mind them. I, I wrote them in a fit of temper. <laughs> well, then last week, that adorable, ridiculous Groucho Marx, Marx, <laughs> ad-libbed so much we didn't have time to finish the song. Now, I want you to listen to me, Bob, and I want your frank and candid opinion. Okay, I'll go stand by that open window. If I'm lucky, I may fall out. <laughs> This is your note, Miss Bankhead. Thank you very much. Give my regards to Broadway. Remember me to Harold's Tell all the gang at 42nd Street that I will soon be there. Whisper of how I'm yearning to mingle with the old time Darling. Uh, you just heard Miss Salula Bankhead in a beautiful rendition of Give My Regards to 7th Avenue. To Broadway. You're still a block away. Isn't he funny? <laughs> uh, Godfrey's talent scouts went that way. <laughs> Tallulah Bankhead, on her own program, The Big Show, from a few days before Thanksgiving in 1950. She was paying tribute to Broadway, as we are tonight, here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5, I'm Murray Horwitz. Before we get to those tributes, though, we have to put paid to our plans to air the Star Wars series in this, its 40th anniversary year. We're still pursuing the rights, and we hope to offer it to you one of these days, but for this summer, I'm afraid it's a no-go. Once again, we deeply apologize for having disappointed you. We disappointed ourselves and we're very thankful for your understanding. We'll continue to offer mostly comedy in this 7.30 slot, and we're going to resume with one of the best, the team of George Burns and Gracie Allen. 
This is a show from the middle of World War II. The guest star is the heartthrob actor Charles Boyer, and you'll hear references to the homegrown Victory Gardens, the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, Free France, the nation in exile led by General Charles de Gaulle during the Nazi occupation, and Marcelling, a process of using a hot iron to put a wave in your hair. From November 30th, 1943, and CBS, it's The George Burns and Gracie Allen Show. Well, hello. Come right in. Oh, George, we've got company. This is Bill Goodwin, speaking for Lever Brothers, makers of Swan, the new white floating soap that's pure as fine Castile. Well, it's Tuesday night again, time for another pleasant visit with George Burns and Gracie Allen and their guest, the co-producer and star of Universal's picture, Flesh and Fantasy, Charles Boyer, with Jimmy Cash, Felix Mills, and his orchestra. And now, meet the people who live in the Burns house, George and Gracie. Well, tonight we find George and Gracie just leaving their neighborhood movie, where they've been watching a romantic Charles Boyer picture. Gracie is still under the spell of her screen idol. Gracie, could you walk a little faster? I said, could you walk a little faster? If you wish, Charles. Gracie, I'm George Burns, your husband, remember? I'm not Charles Boyer. Oh. Well, that's life. Come on, I want to stop in the cigar store. Oh, my, I'll never get over the way Charles Boyer kissed Barbara Stanwyck. I wonder how it feels to be kissed like that. As soon as we get home, I'll show you. <laughs> oh, Mama's little dreamer. <laughs> oh, never mind. Here's the cigar store. Well, good evening, Mr. Burns. Good evening, Stanley. Give me three Perfecto Royales, please. Yes, sir. Why, hello, Mrs. Burns. Hello, Stanley. My, my, you're looking positively radiant tonight. There's a sparkle in your eyes and a glow in your cheek that only a man could put there. It was a man, Stanley. Well, well, there must be more to Mr. Burns than meets the eye. <laughs> We've just been to see Charles Boyer. Oh. Oh. Oh, well. Here are your cigars and your coupons. Thanks. Gee, how do they do it? Three top-notch cigars for a nickel and coupons, too. Uh, how many coupons do you have now? 19,000. Gracious goodness. Yeah, only 6,000 more and I get a key ring. Oh, George, pay Stanley for these ten movie magazines, too. Ten movie magazines? Well, they all have articles about Charles Boyer. Look, Gracie, you can't... Greetings, Stanley. Tis I, Bolingbroke. Hello, Q-Ball. Well, hello, Mr. Bolingbroke. Why, bless me if it isn't the Burnses. Both the lovely one and the other one. <laughs> well, well, this is a most fortuitous happenstance. It is? Yes. I have great news for you, dear lady. The Bolingbroke Little Theatre is about to open its winter theatrical season. I shall want you as my leading lady, naturally. Oh, naturally. Say, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get Charles Boyer for my leading man? Oh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> you could get him easy for around $25,000. Well, George, we wouldn't have to pay him a cent. He's free French. <laughs> 
Well, anyway, you're not going to get mixed up in that Bolingbroke's theater. All he wants is your money. Sir, you insult me. I would not touch one cent of her money. No? No. She can give it directly to my landlady. <laughs> I thought so. Nothing doing. Get your movie magazines, Gracie. We're going home. Oh, and Stanley, uh, I'll take a copy of Cowboy Love Tales. Oh, uh, that is your favorite magazine, isn't it? Yes. What a coincidence. Uh, my opening play will be a dramatization of Cowboy Love Tales. Really? Yes. I can just picture your lovely wife in the role of Lucy, and you as the half-breed, dirty fag. <laughs> Does, uh, does the part of the hero, Oklahoma Tex, happen to be open? Why, certainly, dear friend. Of course, there is that little matter of... Uh, uh, Money? Yes, yes. Uh, well, here's, uh, here's five bucks. Oh. Cabbage from Mr. Morgenthau's Victory Garden. <laughs> well, Gracie, I'm going to be a leading man. You and I are going to be lovers in the old bar X. I still wish it was a cast bar X. <laughs> oh, come on home. Gracie, it's one o'clock in the morning. Put away those silly movie magazines and let's get some sleep. But, George, did you know that Charles Boyer was awfully bashful as a boy? Oh, turn out the light. It says here he didn't get his first kiss until he was 19, and even then he wasn't thrilled. <laughs> no, huh? No. I guess those French generals aren't very attractive. Turn out the light. The article I'm reading now is fascinating. Charles Boyer's ten rules for being a successful lover. Turn out the light. That's the first rule. <laughs> Gracie, turn... Oh, go to sleep. Oh, nuts. Now there's someone at the door. Could it be Charles Boyer? Of course not. Oh, then you answer it. Oh. Ooh, boy, the floor's cold. Hiya, George. I saw the light on. Something wrong? Yeah, something's wrong. I want to sleep, and Gracie wants me to listen to Charles Boyer's advice on love. Oh. Well, let's face it, Daddy. You can use it. <laughs> now, look, funny man. No, I'm serious, George. You husbands get so you take your wives for granted. You forget the little niceties that mean so much to a woman. What do you mean? Well, take today, for example. Did you tell Gracie you loved her? Well, no. Well, did you tell her how pretty she is? No. Did you tell her swan is four soaps in one? Now, Bill. Well, that's music to a woman's ears, George. Here's a white floating soap that's tops for her bath or complexion, wonderful for bathing the baby, and perfect for dishes and light laundry. Four swell soaps in one, a great wartime buy. Bill, I'm in no mood to stand here in my bare feet at one o'clock in the morning and blow bubbles with you. Well, okay, I was just trying to help get Gracie to love you. Well, Gracie does love doesn't she? Well, there's one sure way to find out. Oh. First, you fill the sink with dirty dishes. Dishes? Yeah, sure. Now, you stand beside the sink and tell Gracie she can have her choice. She can either wash the dishes with Swan or kiss you. Now, Bill... And if she takes you, brother, that's love. Good night, Bill. George, that's a real test. Gracie knows those long-lasting Swan suds help make washing dishes a cinch. Bill, have you ever been kicked with a barefoot... And, and she knows Swan is so mild and gentle, you don't have to worry about rough dishpanny hands. I have very sharp toenails. Uh, <laughs> good night, George. Good night, oh, good night. Oh, Bill, Bill, 
it's you. Oh, hello, Gracie. Oh, listen. Listen to what I just read about Charles Boyer. It seems that years ago in France, a man named Pierre Dumont befriended him. Good night. I'm going to bed. Yeah, good night, Pierre. Good night. Well, this Dumont has a daughter named Marie who lives in America now. And Mr. Boyer has been looking for Marie so he can repay his debt to her father. Marie? Say, I'm engaged to a girl named Marie. Is her last name Dumont? Well, I didn't catch your last name. Oh, gee, I wish I were Marie Dumont. Then Charles Boyer would be glad to play my leading man. Say, why wouldn't I be Marie Dumont? Oh, Gracie, you wouldn't. Oh, wouldn't I? Oh, I, I wonder what time Frenchmen get up in the morning. <laughs> Yes? Oh, uh, good morning, Mr. Boyer. Is there something you wish? Uh, pardon me? Is there something you wish? Oh, but, but don't you recognize me, Mr. Boyer? No, I'm sorry. Oh, I- I'm little Marie. You know, Marie Dumont. No! Yes! <laughs> <laughs> you are actually the daughter of my dear old friend? Oh, cool, why not? Oh, oh, Monsieur Merveilleux, entrez dans ma petite Marie. Je vais presque abandonner l'espoir de vous retrouver. Vous voilà, Monsieur Magnifique. Somehow, I knew you'd say that. (laughs) Asseyez-vous, mon petit, racontez-moi. Il y a longtemps que vous êtes en Amérique. Qu'est-ce que vous faites? Où habitez-vous? Well, yes and no. Why don't you speak to me in French, Marie? Oh, well, I've gotten in the habit of speaking American. You know, this country is full of Americans. (laughs) Ah, still the same, Marie. As a girl, you always made a little jokes. I, I did? Yes, you told terrible fibs. Oh, I guess I haven't changed a bit. <laughs> well, you were quite small when I saw you last. But I seem to remember that your hair was black. Well, they have beauty shops in America. Oh. <laughs> and I thought your nose was longer. They have plastic surgeons, too. Oh, and instead of blue, I thought your eyes were brown. Wonderful country, isn't it? <laughs> Perhaps my memory fails me. It's been so many years since I held you on my lap. You you used to hold me on your lap? But of course. Don't you remember? No, darn it. <laughs> well, now I want to hear all about your dear papa. How does he look? Uh, papa? Well, let's see. How long since you've seen him? Oh, 15 years. Well, he looks 15 years older. <laughs> but it could happen to anyone. Oh, poor Papa. He's gotten very gray. Gray? Well, that's strange. Fifteen years ago, he was completely bald. Well, so much for Papa. But how could a bald man become gray? Oh, you're talking about his hair. Uh, Yes. Oh, I was talking about his complexion. Oh, a gray complexion? Not so good either, huh? Oh, very bad. My friend sounds like a sick man. Has he given up uh, his hobby? Oh, no, no. He's sick in bed, but he keeps up his hobby right in his bedroom. Oh, that's that's amazing. Why? Well, his hobby is raising goats. Well, so much for Papa. 
Well, uh, another thing I would like to know about him. Oh, Mr. Boyer, I hate to change the subject. Why don't you change it? Oh, I understand. <laughs> I understand. It troubles you to speak of poor Dumont. Well, it certainly does. Let's speak of me and the play I'm going to begin. Oh, so my little Mary has gone on the stage. Oh, yes. And I'd love you to be my leading man, uh, would you? <laughs> well... Oh, please do it for me. You'd play the hero, Oklahoma Tech. <laughs> Oklahoma takes. Yes. Oh, say you'll do it. Well, how can I refuse? After all, it's a small way in which to repay my debt to Pierre. Who? Uh, your papa. Oh, him. Well, if you'll come over to 202 Cannon Drive this afternoon, we'll rehearse our part. All right, I'll be there, Mary. Oh, oh, and, and by the way, at my house, you'd better call me Gracie. Uh, my husband always does. Your husband? Oh, you're married. Yes. So don't mention how I used to sit on your lap. It's still, still pretty romantic looking. <laughs> but why does your husband call you Gracie instead of Marie? Well, he can't speak French. <laughs> George is a wonderful man. Oh, I'm sure he is. Oh, by the way, uh, did you keep your promise to your father? My promise? Oh, Oh, of course I kept it. Of course. Of course. What was it? <laughs> Why, you promised to marry a man in the same business as your father. Oh, that promise. Sure, I kept it. I wouldn't disappoint Papa. <laughs> well, well. So my little Mary is married to a wine merchant. Uh, wine merchant? Oh, yes. I can't believe it. Oh, it's hard for me, too. <laughs> what is his name again? George. George Burns. George Burns, the wine merchant. Well, I'll be running along. See you at my house this afternoon. Ah, it will be good to taste real wine again. Oh, won't it, though? How do you like your wine? Straight over 7-Up. <laughs> <laughs> again, you joke with me. Alors, au revoir, ma petite. Je me réjouis de vous revoir cet après-midi. Oh, how true. <laughs> young singer Jimmy Cash with Felix Mills in the orchestra, the tune that Jerome Kern favorite from Showboat, the beautiful Why Do I Love You. I'm walking on the air, dear, for life is fair, dear, to love I'm in the seventh heaven, there's more than seven. Discovered in this sweet, improbable, and unreal world, finding you has given me my ideal world. Why do I love you? Why do you love me? Why should there be two?
Meanwhile, Charles Boyer has just arrived at the Burns' home, still under the impression that Gracie is the daughter of his old friend and that George is in the wine business. Why, Charles Boyer. How do you do? Uh, your wife is expecting me. Really? Well, come in. Thank you. Your wife is a remarkable woman. She speaks English hopefully well, don't you think? Why, uh, yeah, I, I have no trouble understanding it. Oh, she told me about the business you're in. It must be fascinating. Oh, sure. We have our good years and bad years, of course. Well, naturally. I understand that uh, 1927 was the finest recent year. 1927? <laughs> yeah, I did pretty well that year. Made a big success in Altoona. Altoona? Oh, I'm not familiar with it. Is it anything like uh, Sauterne? Sauterne? Well, that's a new one on me. Is it, uh, is it near Scranton? Well, possibly, but uh, it's closer to Cleric. <laughs> one of us must be on a detour. Perhaps I can clear it up. Is this Altoona light? Well, it's light in the daytime, and then it gets pretty dark. Light and dark? Oh, I don't think I would like this Altoona. Well, it didn't seem bad in 1927, but uh, I like Bridgeport better. Which port? Bridgeport. It had more bright lights. Oh. Oh, more sparkle, hmm? Yeah, you could put it that way. Well, this Bridgeport must be similar to Champagne. Well, Champagne is a lot further west, Illinois. Oh, naturally, you mean the American Champagne. Oh, yes. Ever been in it? Been in it? Don't tell me people bathe in Champagne. Well, uh, why not? They bathe in Altoona. But don't, uh, don't the bubbles tickle? The bubbles, huh? Yes. Didn't you ever hear of bubbles in champagne? No, but I knew a girl named Ginger in Peoria. Now, look. I'm speaking of champagne, the wine. Now, you seem rather tense for a man who is in the wine business. I'm not in the wine business. Well, that's funny. Your wife told me that you... Mr. Boyer, I'm so glad to see you. Gracie, did you tell Mr. Boyer I was in the wine business? The... Oh. Oh, no, no. I meant I used to be in it. I used to press the grapes with my little bare feet. But George was never in the wine business. Oh, what a pity. He could have made a fortune with those feet of his. <laughs> Gracie, you used to press scrapes no, with your please, bed? George, please. Mr. Boyer wants to discuss our play. He's going to be my leading man, Oklahoma Tex, a rootin' tootin' cowboy. Now, uh, you know, never in my life have I rooted or tooted. <laughs> Gracie, I thought I was going to play Tex. Oh, yes. Let your husband be the part, Mrs. Burns. I really don't believe I'm the type for a cowboy part. Oh, Mr. Boyer, you'd be a perfect cowboy. Well, you, you've even got the eyes for it. Big, dark brown eyes, just like a cow's. Oh. 
Well, all right. I'll do it for your papa. Oh, you, you, you know Gracie's old man? My best friend. Gracie, where did Mr. Boyer oh, meet you? Oh, goodness. I mean, somebody's at the door. Come in. Greetings, good people. Oh, hello, Mr. Bolingbroke. Uh, did you finish the play? Right. Here are the copies of the script. Still damp with the dew of my genius. Oh, good. Mr. Bolingbroke, this is our new leading man, Charles Boyer. How do you do? Sir, permit me to assure you that it is an honor and a privilege to meet such a celebrated actor as Nigel Bolingbroke. <laughs> oh, murder. Here's your script, Charlie. And yours, Mrs. B. Hey, how about me? Haven't I got a part? Uh, no. However, I might create a role for you. Uh, is your wallet on your person? <laughs> oh, it's in the den. Uh, then let us wend our way thither, huh? I create so much better in the presence of money. <laughs> okay, come on. Now, uh, Mrs. Burns, uh, forgive me if I seem to doubt, but are you sure that you are the daughter of Pierre Dumont? Oh, absolutely. Well, have you got a picture of him? A picture? Yes, a picture. Oh, oh, a picture. Um, uh, is that him on the wall? No, that's Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> oh, no, no, I meant the other wall. Oh, that's George Washington. Yes. Well, you're very well educated, aren't you? Oh, but I assure you, Mr. Boyer, I am Marie Dumont. Well, is there someone who could confirm your story? I mean, some Frenchman who knew you and your father back in France? Some Frenchman? Oh, hello, well, Gracie. I... Oh, you, you have company. Why, Marcel Goodwin. <laughs> Oh, Gracie, it's just a finger wave. <laughs> hey, uh, isn't this Charles Boyer? Oh, no, you see, Mr. Boyer, that proves he's a Frenchman. He, he recognized you. Um, Mr. Boyer, I want you to meet Marcel Goodwin, who knew my father, Pierre Dumont, and who will tell you that I'm his daughter, and who probably can't stay long after he tells you. <laughs> oh, uh, well... How do you do, Mr. Boyer? Bonjour, Marcel. Bonjour. Comment ça va? Vous allez bien? And who no longer speaks French. <laughs> well, well, Mr. Goodwin. So you knew my old friend, Pierre Dumont. Well, so I've been told. I mean, uh, uh, yes, I've been told that you know him, too. How did he look when you last saw him? Um, well, I tell you, I had to talk to him through the door. He was, um, was taking a bath. Oh, now what did he say? Well, he said, uh, said, um, Marcel, he said, this is the greatest soap I ever bathed with. <laughs> and I said, well, sure, Pierre, that's Swan, the new white floating soap. <laughs> he said, is it, Marcel? And I said, of course, Pierre. And Swan's not only great for your bath, but just the soap for bathing the baby. And it's great for dishes or light laundry. Swan is four swell soaps in one. <laughs> Pierre loved his bath. Oh, didn't he, though? Well, so much for Papa. Goodbye, Marcel. No, 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 wait. Uh, how about Madame Dumont? Of course, you saw her. Um, well, uh, yes, uh, she was bathing, too. <laughs> in the same tub? Oh, uh, Papa was a great one to save water. Oh, well, no, you see, what I meant was he was bathing the baby in the, in the nursery. Oh, I see. And what did Madame Dumont say to you? Well, she said, Marcel, this is the greatest soap I ever bathed the baby with. And I said, oh, sure, Madame, that's Swan. Doctors recommend Swan for bathing the baby. It's pure as fine cast seals, and it's also so mild, it's kind even to a little baby's tender skin. And then I said, and remember, Madame, since Swan is so mild, well, it's just well for your hands and face, your complexion. And she said, oui, oui. 
Oui, oui. Huh? Talkative woman, Madame Dumont. Well, so much for Mama. Goodbye, Marcel. No, no, wait. Didn't they speak of me? Oh, yes, of course they did. We, we talked about nothing else. Oh, and what did they say? Well, they said, um, Marcel, when you see Charles, tell him that Swan breaks in two. He can put half in the bathroom for his hands and face tub or shower, and half in the kitchen for his dishes and light laundry. Well, au revoir, Charles. Au revoir, Marie. Oh, thank you, Marcel. Well, Mr. Boyer, now, do you believe me? Well, I would still like to know. Well, Mrs. Burns, everything is settled. For an additional three dollars, I created a splendid part for your husband. Yeah. As the curtain goes up, I sing a cowboy song off stage. <laughs> All right, all right, let's start. Curtain, music burns. I'm heading for the last roundup. Da da la da la da la da da la da Gonna saddle old plane for the last time and ride. Is that absolutely necessary? Oh, oh, of course. It's mood music. Oh, but don't you think he mood a little too loud? And now we are ready for the first scene. Lucy and Oklahoma Tex are sitting in front of the ranch house. Lucy, speak. Uh, Tex, it's a lovely evening, isn't it? Well, go ahead, Mr. Boyer. Oh, no, look, uh, please, uh, I don't think this part is for me. Oh, it's perfect for you. Now, come on. Uh, Tex, it's a lovely evening, isn't it? I reckon... That's <laughs> how it is, ma'am. That there sure is a right purty sunset. Brother. Tex, if I ask you something, will you answer me true? We all ain't in the habit of lying down home in Texas, man. This is the greatest thing since the invention of tear gas. Oh, please. Tex, I want the truth. Do you really honest and truly love me? Oh, Gacy, this next line is too much. No, I just... Oh, I just come... What would Papa say? Oh, right. Oh, go on. Uh, Tex, I want the truth. Do you really honest and truly love me? I sure do, gal. <laughs> I got... I got the doggonest hankering for you. Yippee. Well, now I've heard everything. Now, Gracie, I'm sorry, but I cannot do this play. Really, even for the daughter of my best friend. Say, that's been bothering me. Where did you know Gracie's father? Well, he lived outside of Paris. Sure. He lived in San Francisco. Well, he's not outside of Paris. <laughs> Gracie, your old man has never been out of this state. So my suspicions were correct. You are not the daughter of Pierre Dumont. Of course not. She's Jughead Allen's daughter. <laughs> oh, you've been up to your old tricks again, huh, Gracie? Well, I just did it so Mr. Boyer would play Oklahoma Tech, but I guess I was wrong. You certainly were. I'll apologize to him. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Boyer. And besides, you're much too fine an actor. Much too handsome and romantic to play Oklahoma Tech. You wouldn't be believable as such a stupid character. Oh, thank you. Here, George, you've got to cup your part back. (laughs) 
from just after Thanksgiving in 1943, the George Burns and Gracie Allen Show with guest star Charles Boyer. You heard it here on the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. By almost any account, a big step forward in the development of the American Broadway musical was Harry B. Smith and Reginald de Coven's operetta, Robin Hood, first produced in 1891. It was revived several times on Broadway over the decades, and no doubt it contributed to the vast popularity of the Robin Hood legend, which would have been well known by the audience on January 8, 1955, when an episode called Robin Hood aired over CBS Radio on the series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Getting off stage already, Mr. Dillon. There's Miss Kitty. She got down first. That's over an hour late. I wonder what held them up. Oh, sometimes them drivers just won't bother to hurry. They can be awful stubborn. Well, anyway, it got here. Sure hope Miss Kitty enjoyed her visit in Ellsworth. You look fine, don't you? Who was that she was talking to, Mr. Barkin? I didn't know he'd been out of town, Mr. Dillon. Well, that's why the bank's been closed, Chester. Mr. Barkin won't trust anybody running it if he isn't around. Uh, hello, Miss Kitty. Hello, Chester. Hello, Mac. Well, did you have a good trip, Kitty? Well, you're here. Hello, Mr. Barkins. Uh, Marshal, we were held up and robbed. What? Held up? Back at Rocky Ford, Matt. Lone bandit. He took the box and he robbed Mr. Botkin here. Took everything I had, over $300 in cash. Anybody hurt? The shotgun rider didn't think they were carrying enough in the treasure box to be worth fighting for. Guess he didn't care what happened to the passengers. Well, how much was in the box? Only about $500, the driver said. Well, what about the two other passengers and you, Kitty? Didn't he rob you? He didn't take a thing of mine. He singled me out, Marshal. Must have known I'm a banker. He made Mr. Botkin put his coat on the ground, and then everybody had to throw everything they were carrying onto it. But all he took was what Mr. Botkin had. I don't understand it at all, Marshal. He bowed to me, Matt. You should have seen him. 
real gentleman-like. Any idea who it was? No. He never spoke at all, Marshal. He used his six-gun to tell us what to do. What, did you ever see him before? You couldn't see him. He was wearing a flour sack over his head with eye holes cut in it. And the rest of him was covered with a long linen duster. He's real clever, that bandit. Well, there must be something. What kind of a horse was he riding? I never even looked at him. I did. It was a mighty poor horse, too. It was a big gelding, Marshal, with uh, four white stockings and a blaze. Okay, we'll look for it as soon as I talk to the others. Uh, there's something strange about this business, Marshal. Why should I be the only passenger he robbed? Well, if I can find him, I'd like to ask him that myself, Mr. Bucket. Neither the driver, nor the shotgun messenger, nor the other two passengers, who turned out to be a couple of homesteaders, could give us any more information on the bandit. So Chester and I saddled up and rode out to Rocky Ford. We found nothing there. About a half a mile further on, we spotted the bay gelding, standing alone and unsaddled. I put a rope on him, and then we got down to stretch our legs and take a closer look. Mr. Botkin was right, Mr. Dillon. He sure ain't much of a horse. Yeah, he's good enough, Chester. Good for us, you mean. He's put that band to foot already. Hey, Chester. Hmm? Come here. What? Now look at that brand. What? That's old man Miller's lazy am. That's Miller's horse, not the outlaws. Nobody but a fool would ride a crowbait like that to hold up a stage, and this man's no fool. Well, but everybody saw him on this horse. He borrowed him, Chester, just long enough for the holdup. That way nobody saw his real mount. Well, now, ain't that smart. Hmm. You head out that way? Yeah. Toward the river. Hell, I'm not even going to follow him. You're not. Now, once he hits the river, he'll swim downstream to a cattle crossing, and his tracks will be lost. And he's got about a four-hour start on this anyway. Yeah. Looks like he's going to get clean away, don't it? Chester. Hmm? Did, uh, did you ever hear of Teddy Blue Fisher? Teddy Blue Fisher? Yeah. No, sir, I ain't. Well, he's got quite a reputation. I'm uh, surprised you never heard of him. Why? What's he so famous for? For robbing the rich and sparing the poor. And for being quite a gentleman about the whole business. Uh, nobody's been able to get enough evidence to charge him with anything that would hold up in court. Why not? I like today. We haven't got anything on him. Well, maybe it wasn't him, Mr. Dillon. I'm only guessing, Chester, but... It was Fisher or somebody who works like him. He held up the stage, took the box, and robbed the only rich man on it. And, of course, he wouldn't take anything from a lady. Mm. My gracious, if I went to the trouble to stop a stage, I'd take everything. He don't sound so smart after all. Now, that's part of his game, Chester. Everybody in the country will soon hear about him, and there won't be a poor family anywhere that won't hide him and feed him and give him anything he needs. He's got them all standing up for him, you mean, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's the way it works. You know something, Mr. Dillon? What? He sounds kind of like that green Indian they had over in one of them foreign lands one time. What? You know, Robin Head. You remember him? Robin Hood, Chester, and he wasn't an Indian. Ah, but you're right. Teddy Blue Fisher works exactly the same way. 
Yeah, outside of pure luck, I, I don't know how I'm going to stop him. Ah, Doc, you look different. What have you done to yourself? I had a haircut. Oh, that's it. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't hurt either of you to get a haircut now, man. Well, I can't afford it. Not at no 25 cents a throw. Well, it's all right for you, Doc. You need it. Nobody wants a shaggy medicine man cutting them open. Oh, medicine. Oh, well. <clears throat> what about you? I suppose the dignity of the law served best by a couple of molting prairie chickens. Just it. Yes, sir. Take out your gun and shoot him. Yes, sir. Hold still, Doctor. Go ahead, shoot. Nothing will happen to you. Not around here, it won't. <laughs> You'll go free as a bird. You can run around like Teddy Blue Fisher and hold up stages and everything. No trouble at all. Not from the law. Wait a minute, Doc. Who told you about Teddy Blue Fisher? Cheaters did. At the barbershop. He said everybody knows about him now. Oh, I expected that, but... You got more to tell me, Doc, so go ahead. Well, I don't know why I bother, but since I'm already here, I guess I might as well. Well? Well, Fisher got a haircut just before I did, Matt. He did? Are you sure? He told Teeters who he was. Yeah, well, he's not wasting any time. What else did he tell Teeters? But said he was going to stay here and gamble for a few days. He's over at the Long Branch starting now. now he's got $800 for a stake. Well, you can't prove where he got it, can you? No. But there's something I can do. What's that? Look, Doc, his whole game's based on stealing from the rich. If I can stop it, maybe I can show him up for what he is. Well, you mean you think he's a fake? Now, did you ever hear of any outlaw admit he's nothing but a common thief? And a thief will steal from anybody, Doc, rich or poor, if he has to. Well, how are you going to stop him, man? Well, for one thing, I'm going to put two shotgun men on every stage that goes out of here. Men that'll shoot. Ah, oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Oh, oh, oh. But I hear Fisher's quite a gunman himself. Yeah, I know, Doc. I'd throw him in jail without evidence, but it'd only make him a martyr and people would think more of him than ever. Now, I... I gotta outsmart him somehow. If you can. Yeah. Yeah, if I can. Kitty, hmm? I heard that Teddy Blue Fisher was in here. Oh, he just left. Said to be back in a minute. He's quite a fellow, Matt. Yeah, he sure is. Do you hear what he did? No, what? He broke the Faro Bank. Won over a thousand dollars. Well, that won't help. 
What do you mean? Not all the money he's got now, he won't have to work at his usual trade. He can loaf around for a long time. No harm in that, is there? Well, it makes the law look pretty foolish, Kitty. And besides, he's got to be in action before I can stop him. You still think he held up the stage, don't you? Well, that's his way of doing things. You gonna run him out of town, Matt? I'd sure like to. Well, now's your chance. Here he comes. Buy that drink now, Miss Kitty. Well, there's a man here who wants to meet you first. How do you do, sir? I'm Teddy Blue Fisher. I'm Matt Dillon. Pleasure's mine, sir. That's right. The pleasure's all yours. Coming from anyone else, I'd take that real bad. But I can understand your feeling. Well, we know where we stand, don't we? And it's too bad. I would like to be friends. Now you're a thief, Fisher, and you're probably a murderer to boot. That's a lie. I never shot a man in my life unless he tried to shoot me. To kill a man who's trying to protect his property is murder the way I figure it. Well, I'm not going to argue with you, Marshal. No, I didn't think you'd be dumb enough to. That'd be admitting what you are, wouldn't it? <laughs> People talk, make up stories. I have never done anything wrong. How long are you planning on staying in Dodge? Well, Marshal, I never planned. But I'm living pretty well in Dodge. I kind of like it. Yeah, so I hear. Only trouble right now is finding somebody willing to buck me gambling. <laughs> My luck's been showing too much. Well, I'm sure you'll find somebody, Fisher. I thank you kindly, Marshal. I hope to. That reminds me, I want to talk to a man over there about it. Miss Kitty, if you'll excuse me, I'll be right back. Sure. Oh, uh, I'll buy you a drink, too, Marshal. No? Then some other time. Kitty. Huh? I want you to do something for me. Yeah. You know Vent Butler? Of course. Okay, now, when you're talking to Fisher, tell him you think maybe Vent will buck him at Pharaoh. Tell him Vince, the one man in Dodge who's got the bankroll and who's enough of a gambler to try it. Well, Matt, you know since Vint went straight, he's barely made enough to live on. Well, don't tell Fisher that. Well, I don't understand it, but I'll do it. Thanks, Kitty. I'll have Vint here in about a half hour. Marshal Dillon. It's okay, Vent. Now, Marshal, I ain't done a thing. Now, don't start shaking, Vent. No, I, it ain't that. You you surprise me. Well, I uh, think I'm going to surprise you more. But uh, let's go inside, huh? Sure, sure. Come on in. Vent, you remember what happened a year ago? I sure do. But, Marshal, I kept my word. I swear I have. Well, as far as I know you have, Vent. Good. You had me worried there. You remember I told you that if you went straight and quit dealing crooked, I'd give you a chance? You could have put me in jail the way things were, Marshal. Now, you're the most accomplished man with cards I ever saw, Vent. No, not anymore. I'm no better than any other man now. Tell me something. You know how to win dealing Pharaoh? Oh, I used to take him something fierce at Pharaoh. It was slaughter. How much money you got, Vent? A couple of hundred. Why? 
Is that enough for you to take about 2,000 off a man? 2,000? Dealing crooked. You been drinking or something, Marshal? I'm asking a favor of you, Vin. Well, you really mean it, don't you? Teddy Blue Fisher. What? Kitty's setting him up for you at the Long Branch right now. You go down there and take him. And when you've done it, you come back to my office. I'll be waiting for you. It's near midnight, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, vent must be rusty. Maybe he's taking his time so as to get the full pleasure out of it. Well, he better take his time. Fisher catches on to him, there's going to be trouble. You want me to go over and see what's happening? No, we better stay out of there, Chester, both of us. Yes, sir. Here comes somebody. Hey, it's Vint. How'd you make out, Vint? Like a bear in spring, Chester. But, Marshal, you said a couple of thousand dollars. He had near 2,500 on him. There it is. Yeah, that's a lot of money, isn't it? Oh, I've fleeced men for more than that in my time. <laughs> I never saw a crook yet that didn't like to brag about it. Now, Marshal, you made me a crook. Now, that wasn't too hard, though, was it, Vince? But you did fine. What are you going to do with all that money? Well, I'm going to see that you get some of it, Vince, when the time comes. Because you've earned it. It's none of my business, Marshal, but I'd sure like to know what this is all about. Our Fisher's broke now, Vince. His vacation's over. He's got to go back to work. Robbing rich people, huh? Yeah, if he can. I don't envy you trying to catch him, Marshal. From what I hear, most everybody in the country's on his side already. They'll make it awful hard for you. Sure. But I'm a gambler, too, Vent. Gracious, if I owned a bank, I'd want it busier than this, Mr. Dillon. Well, I wouldn't worry about Mr. Bodkin, Chester. He makes money even when it's closed. I'll wait here, will you? I won't be long. Okay, sir. Oh, hello, Marshal. Come in, come in. You wanted to see me, Mr. Bodkin? Well, I couldn't get away to come tell you, Marshal. I thought you'd like to know right away. Oh, no, what? Well, I rode out to Emmett Bower's main ranch this morning. Wanted an appraisal on some new barns he's putting up. Yeah. And I took two men with me, Marshal. Clint Jones and Jeff Roberts. Now, they're good men. You bet they are. That same bandit, Marshal, with the flour sack and linen duster, tried to surprise us at Twin Grove. Well, what happened? Well, he put a couple of rifle shots near us from about a quarter mile away. Thought we'd stop and give up, I guess. But the boys went right after him. Did they get him? No, no, he ran. He's got an awful fast horse, Marshal. They couldn't get close enough to even identify him. Well, that's his third attempt at a holdup this week. And his wildest. What are you going to do? Well, he comes to town most every day, Mr. Buckin. The next time he rides out, I'm going to be following him. I think he's through trying to rob people who are ready for him and who'll fight.
Mid-afternoon, Teddy Blue Fisher rode into Dodge. He stood around the plaza for a couple of hours, watched the stage pull out for Abilene with its two professionals riding shotgun, and then suddenly seeming to make up his mind, he mounted his horse and rode slowly out of town. Shortly after, Chester and I were on his trail. About ten miles north, he stopped at a clump of elder and waited for dusk. And then rode on another couple of miles to the house of a homesteader called Charlie Bowen. It was dark when he went inside, and Chester and I got down and crept up to the place on foot. What do you think he's doing here, Mr. Dillon? We'll find out. Maybe they're feeding him. He's been so doggone broke all week. Yeah, maybe. Now, hold up a minute, Chester. What is it? You see where he tied his horse? Yes, sir. He's over behind that wagon. Well, we'll just make real sure of Teddy Blue Fisher. You go over there and unsaddle his horse, Chester, and then slip his bridle off. Yes, sir. But don't scare the horse into making a lot of noise. Well, I'll lead him off a little before I turn him loose, Mr. Dillon. Good. I'll be up by the window nearest the door there. All right, sir. I wish I'd known you was coming, Mr. Fisher. My wife could have fixed a couple of chickens. This is quite an honor meeting you. There's a little cold pork out in the cellar. And I got a jar of spiced apples left. How's that sound? Why, that sounds fine, ma'am. <laughs> Just fine. You folks doing pretty well out here, aren't you? Well, we got no complaint. The Lord's been good to us. Yeah, but we've been doing better than most homesteaders. Yeah, that's what I thought. You did? Oh, I've read by here a couple of times lately. And I can see you got yourself a nice house, some stock. Most folks got nothing but a patch of corn or a sod hut. It's a shame, ain't it? The way people have to live. Yeah, well, that's why we kind of stand behind a man like you, Mr. Fisher. Now, now, I ain't seeing nothing, but you take a big banker like old Botkin. Why, he's got more money than he knows what to do with. It, it don't hurt him none to lose a little of it now and then. Why, that's true. Of course, bankers don't uh, don't have all the money in the world. They don't have none of ours. And they never will. You don't believe in banks, ma'am? No, sir. I wouldn't put a penny in them. <laughs> That's right smart of you. Yeah, well, uh, she's like that, Mr. Fisher. She she always said our money ought to be right where we could lay our hands on it whenever we want. Why, of course. But some of that uh, depends on how much you've got. Well, we've been saving all our lives. Must have near, oh, $800 now. What you doing, Mr. Dillon? Talking money, Chester. Where do you Quiet keep that $800, friend? Uh, it's hid. Where? Well, it wouldn't be right to tell nobody, Mr. Fisher. It's a secret. <laughs> you could tell me. Oh, no, no. We can't tell nobody at all. Yes, you can. Mr. Fisher, what are you doing? What's the gun for I just want to know where you keep that money. Oh, you're not going to rob us. Oh, we're poor. I've robbed poor people for this. No. No, you haven't. Don't be fools. Now show me that money. You're a fake, Mr. Fisher. You're a liar. Sure. But nobody will ever find it out. I'm going to kill the both of you. No. But you can live a little longer. Just show me where that money is. Don't tell him, Charlie. I won't. He ain't gonna rob us. I got to kill you anyways now. I'm going in just to stay back. Yes, sir. Now, where do you... Oh, 
All right, hold it, Fisher. Don't touch that gun or I'll bust your other arm. Marshal, he was going to shoot us. He was going to kill us. Nina, what's the matter with you? I was joking. Marshal, you had no cause to shoot me. You're lucky I didn't kill him. You should have, Marshal. He's nothing but a murderer and a dirty common thief. I'd rather have him in jail, Bourne, than on public Look, trial. this was a joke. I was just fooling, I tell you. I never harm people like you, and you know it. I don't hardly know it. It's all over, Fisher. You're finished. Maybe some other Robin Hoods like you will be finished, too, when people hear what you like when you think nobody's watching. Chester, go tie up his arm. He's too valuable now to bleed to death. Directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, Harry Bartell, Helen Cleave, Joe Cranston, and Frank Cady. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. The current issue of TV Radio Mirror carries a feature story on Gunsmoke, complete with pictures of Matt, Chester, Doc, and Kitty. It is available at your local newsstand. Remember, listen again next week for another transcribed story of the Western Frontier when Marshal Matt Dillon, Chester Proudfoot, Doc, and Kitty, together with all the other hard-living citizens of Dodge, will be with you once more. It's America growing west in the 1870s. It's drama. It's gun smoke. This is the CBS Radio Network. self-righteous thief who liked to be thought of as Robin Hood, the title of that Gunsmoke episode from the very beginning of 1955 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org, Check out our website at thebigbroadcast.org and do please visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. Tonight, we're celebrating the Broadway Theater. June is usually the month when the Tony Awards are given out and one of the most famous and accurate statements about playwriting is one I first heard attributed to George S. Kaufman. Then I heard it credited to Stephen Sondheim, which was weird because he's the one I heard say it was from George S. Kaufman. Turns out it was first written in an essay by Steele McKay, 
one of the most successful American actor-managers of the 19th century. He's less remembered today for his plays than he is for having invented the folding seat we see in most theaters and the fire curtain we see on most stages. Oh, the quotation. It's, plays are not written, they're rewritten. What does that have to do with tonight's Dragnet episode? Nothing, except that it's called The Big Revision. Sorry, not sorry. It comes from May 10th, 1955, NBC and the series Dragnet. Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a burglary detail. After weeks of investigation, a suspect in a burglary is picked up. You've got the evidence for a conviction, but over $200,000 in loot is still missing. Your job? Find it. It was Saturday, March 5th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of burglary detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Bernard. My name's Friday. We're on our way back from the cell block, and it was 9.45 a.m. when we got to the interview room. Felony section. I'll get the light. One in, Bowen. Sit down. Over there. You want to smoke? Here's the light. You want to talk to us this morning? You're not doing yourself any good this way, Bowen. We checked your apartment, Bowen, found a set of tools our crime lab says are the ones used in the Hendricks job. We can put you in the front room of the house. You're dead, Bowen. Why don't you admit it? This is the first time you've been nailed for anything big. You go along with us, and the judge might take it into consideration. If we have to write it up this way, he's liable to throw the book in your face. Who was with you on the job, Bowen? We know you didn't swing it alone. Somebody had to carry the light. Come on, who was it? All right, what about the loot? Where's that? That stuff's not going to do you any good in the joint. There's over 200 grand in furs and jewelry missing. We know you had it. Now, where is it? How about it, Bowen? You're just causing yourself a lot of grief. Okay, let's go. On your feet. Come on. Too bad, cop. Is that so? Sure. There's nothing you can do to make me tell where the stuff is. Not a thing. Sure. You're never going to find out where it is. Never. Well, it really doesn't make a lot of difference. Hmm? You're never going to use it. Three weeks previously, on February 10th, two unidentified persons had entered a home in the Bel Air District. They'd taken furs and jewelry valued at over $200,000. The investigation conducted by burglary detail had netted one of the suspects. He was identified as Cade Bowen, WMA, 32 years. His arrest record had listed several charges of drunk driving and disturbing the peace. However, he'd never been picked up on a felony before. In spite of our efforts, we'd been unable to break him down. He refused to identify the other suspect or to tell us where we could recover the stolen goods. All of his friends and relatives were questioned. None of them could aid us. The case on him was prepared for the district attorney's office, and we continued to look for the other suspect. 
Monday, March 7th, 8.02 a.m. I checked into the squad room. That you, Joe? Yeah. Now you're late. A couple of minutes here. I got it. Burglary Friday. Oh, yeah, Amory. Mm-hmm. Sure. No, not a sign of it. Well, we'd like to hear it anyway. Where can we meet you? Where? Yeah, all right. We'll be right over. About five minutes. Right. Goodbye. It was Emery. Who? Emery Docks. Says he wants to see us. What about? Some stolen fur coats. Frank and I left the office and drove over to see the informant. We found him in Pershing Square watching a checker game. Just a minute, Joe. I'll be with you. All right. No, 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 no. Not that one... Always does it. Okay, let's go. Always the same with that guy. Is that right? Yeah, always the same. Set him up that way and he'll jump. As soon as he does, game's over. He can't see it, but it's over. Mm-hmm. Real pigeon for the setup. You sit over there and talk. You know my partner, don't you, Emery? Yeah, sure. Hi. How you doing? Not too bad. Guess you can't win them all. Yeah. We can sit there. What do you want to see us about? Oh, fell over something day before yesterday. Thought maybe it'd make sense for you. Mm-hmm. Met a guy who had some coats for sale. Price he was quoting had to be hot. Where'd you meet him? Bar over on first. See a friend? Not to make a touch. I see him in the bar once in a while, but he don't ever buy a drink. Mm-hmm. Other night he got real palsy wellsy. I don't know, maybe he was gassed or something. But he sure was friendly. You met him in the bar? Yeah, he stopped in to have a belt before I ate. This guy was there, sitting on the stool next to me. Got to talking. He almost knocked me over when he bought a drink. Right on the floor, he knocked me. Mm-hmm. One thing led to something else. He asked what I was doing. I said, oh, just about anything to turn a buck. He asked me if I had any money I wasn't using. I said I didn't. Yeah. He said it was too bad. He said if I could raise a couple of long bills, he could turn me on to something good. The coats, huh? Yeah, yeah. He told me how a friend of his came up with these fur coats, wanted to dump them. Said the price was real good. What kind of coats were they? Mink. Full length. Had a couple of those scarf things, too. He said there was Stone Martin or something, you know, where the skins look like they're biting each other. Yeah. Like those, Stone Martin, I think. Mm-hmm. Guy made a big thing about how the price was right, and if I had any loot, I could come out with a big thing. Did he say where his friend got him? No. Matter of fact, I don't think there was a friend. Coats were in his car. I know if I had that kind of merchandise, I wouldn't put it in nobody else's pocket, that's for sure. What's this fellow's name, do you know? Uh, Jarvis Dean. That's D-E-A-N? I guess so. What do you know about him? Oh, not much. I told you I see him around. He's an angle fellow, always looking for a touch. He hold any kind of a job? Not so as it would stand out. How's he live? Oh, off other people mostly. Once in a while he makes a big score and he's popping for drinks all over the place. A couple of days he's blown the wad and he's back on the dole. You know where you can find him? I can't give you no address. He usually around the bar? Mostly. You won't find him there for a couple of days now, though. Huh? He said something about going out of town down to Palm Springs. Something about how he could make a contact down there and unload the coats. This Jarvis Dean ever been arrested? Well, I don't know. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about jails. Figures, though. What do you mean? Oh, way he talks. Some of the people I've seen him with, six to an even, they can draw your floor plan of the laundry up at Q. Mm-hmm. And give us the name of the people. Well, if it's all the same to you, I'd rather not. They ain't done nothing to me, and I'd like to keep it that way. You know, some of them are pretty mean. Well, you understand it isn't that I'm afraid, but I, I don't see no reason to stand nothing up. Mm-hmm. Does Dean say where this contact was at Palm Springs? Oh, he mentioned some bar called Spanky's, that's all. In the town itself? Yeah, I guess so. Mm-hmm. 
When I couldn't spring the money to go with him, he kind of cooled off. You know, he stopped being real friendly. Hmm. I got to thinking about it and figured maybe it'd mean something to you, so... Well, the guy goes around with a couple of grand furs in his car. He didn't win him in a raffle. Got to be something there. Uh-huh. Do you any good? Yeah, we'll check it. When I first heard about it, I thought it'd do some good right away. I thought of you guys right away. Well. I always like to try and help when I can. Mm-hmm. Now it works out uh, both ways. Maybe you can give me a hand sometime. You know, like now? What? I could sure use a couple of bucks. Things ain't been going too good. Well, that's too bad. It's just temporary. It won't last. A couple of days, I got a job coming up. Hotel over on Wilshire. Pearl diving. Guy's been drafted, and I'm in line for the job in just a couple of days. Well, I've only got a couple of bucks, Emery. You can have them if it'll help. Sure, you Anything at all. There you are. Thank you. Hey, you got a pencil? A what? Pencil. Got one I can use? Yeah, here. I always like to keep these things legal. You never know. Yeah. There you are. I owe you. Pay you back as soon as I start to work. Well, don't worry about it, Emery. No, no, no. You got to do these things up legal. Can you tell us what this guy Dean looks like? Yeah, he... You think there's really something to it, huh? Oh, we can check it. Well, sure, figures he stole the coats, and then he reasoned he'd want to give them away if he didn't. Mm-hmm. Guy like that, he don't do nothing for nothing. Got to be a payoff somewhere. Well, then he won't be disappointed. Huh? There'll be one. Frank and I got the description of Jarvis Dean and the car he was driving, then we returned to the office. We had the name run through R&I, and we found a record. The mugshot was pulled and shown to Emory Docks. He said it was the man who tried to sell him the coats. We put out a local broadcast on an APB on the suspect and his car. 11.25 a.m. Cade Bowen was questioned again, but he refused to give us any information on whether or not Dean was his accomplice in the burglary. At 2.30 that afternoon, Frank and I met with Captain Bernard in his office. You think it's a Hendricks loot? Should be. We've checked around. There haven't been any other thefts that covered. Got the list? Yeah, here. Thanks. Now you can see right there, Skipper. Two mink coats, one stole, Stone Martin scarf. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the jewelry? Well, he didn't say anything about it. Doesn't mean it's not there. Mm-hmm. What about this bar in Palm Springs you mentioned? Spanky's? Yeah. You know anything about it? We know where it is. What kind of place is it? Resort town bar. What about the reputation? Clean. We never had any reports about it. Uh-huh. You think that's where they'll turn the stuff? Well, we don't know. All we got's the name. Some place to look. One we've had. You can't get anything out of Bowen? He won't even admit he's in Los Angeles. What you got to say about the evidence? Just sits and looks at us. And Palm Springs is the only lead you got? That's it. Okay, trot it down. Can you leave right away? I can't. How about you, Smith? Just call Faye. That's it, then. Go on down there, see what you can find out. Be sure to check with their department. They might have something for you. All right. When will you be back? Well, if it works out, it should be sometime in the morning. Check with me as soon as you get in. Yeah. This fellow Dean got a record? Yeah, assault 211. Sounds like he might be heavy. It's possible. Well, take it easy. Yeah. He's the fellow you're after. He's not going to want to give that stuff up. Well, that puts it on our backs. Hmm? We've got to convince him. Frank and I went down to the carpool and checked out a trip car. Two hours later, we pulled into Palm Springs. We talked to the local authorities. They had nothing on Jarvis Dean. As far as they knew, there was nothing wrong with Spanky's bar. We got the address of the place and drove over. Yeah, what'll it be? Police officers like to ask a few questions. Oh, L.A. cops, huh? Something wrong? Oh, we'd like to ask you some questions. Sure. Come on back here. It'd be easier to talk. All right. Well, what can I do for you? I'd like you to take a look at these pictures. Tell us if you know this man. No, I never saw him. How about this one? Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, he's been around. Is he here now? 
No, he doesn't usually make it this early. You seen him at all today? I think he was in this morning around 10 in there. You know where we can find him? What's he done? Police business. Well, just so it doesn't get anybody here in trouble, that guy's a real crackpot. What do you mean? He's lonely. He's good business, but if I had my druthers, I'd just as soon he stayed away. Why is that? Well, the way he acts. We got a lot of big people coming here. You know, the picture crowd, a lot of money. They like things quiet. They come down here for a rest, and that's what they want. Guy like that fella, they don't help. They're right. Sure, he gets gassed, makes a big noise all about how he's buying drinks for the house. The customers don't like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, drinks aren't bad enough, but he's got to start a pitch. What do you mean? Well, he's been trying to set something up, some kind of a deal. You know what it is? No, I don't pay a lot of attention. I just hear him talking to some of the people. Gets any worse, though, I'm going to have to 86 him. Does he come in alone? Yeah, sometimes. What do you mean? Well, there's a chick he brings in once in a while. The two of them just sit there and drink. You know her? Why, is she in trouble? Do you know her? Yeah, her name is Blanche. She lives down here. She around? Well, she was. When? About half an hour ago. Said she was going out to get something to eat. She'd be back. You know where she went? No, half a dozen places inside a block she could have gone. If you want to talk to her, the best thing would be to wait right here. All right. She was carrying a real load when she walked out. I hope that food helps her. He said she lives down here. Yeah, she's got a place out the south end of town. What's she do for a living, you know? Well, I don't know. I don't think she's got a job. Seems I heard her say she was divorced. Probably got a chunk of dough from her old man. She and this fellow pretty friendly? You mean the guy in this picture? Yeah. I guess you could say that. Most of the time they're together. How often is he here? Oh, he comes in the place almost every night, you know, when he's in town. Is that quite a bit? Yeah, three, four days a week. You ever hear what he did for a living? No, I don't think he worked steady. Hey, there's your girl now. All right. Pour me a drink, huh? Yeah. Uh, Blanche, a couple of fellas here want to talk to you, huh? Oh, that's so? Bring them on. I always like to talk to fellas. If they're friends of yours, old bite, I know they're okay. Yeah, sure, Blanche. Is these them? Hey, now, they're pretty nice looking. You know that, fellas? You're pretty nice looking. What if we get to a booth? Might be a little easier to talk to you. Oh, same to you. I'll talk right here. I won't say a thing. What's your name, honey? Friday. Say, that's a funny name. Like today, huh? That's right. It's huh? my partner, Frank Smith. I do. Oh, come on now. Don't try to pitch that at me. Smith. How phony if I ever heard one. Hey, Bart. Yeah, Blanche. Have that drink. I stay here all night, you know. Do you think you had enough of that? No. You just keep your big yap shut. Well, you better take it easy, Blanche. Take it easy, nothing. Ain't no fellow named like Friday and Smith gonna tell me and not to have a drink. They're a couple of phonies. That's what they are. Uh, phonies. Yes. Settle down now. We're police officers. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? Well, I'm the Queen of Sheba. How do you think of that? Hmm? How do you think of that, Mr. Phony? Uh, come on, Blanche. You better quiet down. Don't yell at me, you bartender. You got any class at all? You keep these mashers out of here. A fine, lousy bar you're running. Let's go outside, lady. You just try and take me out there. Just come another step on, knock your head off. Blanche, please, honey, take it easy. All right, miss, you said enough. Now let's go outside. Oh, sure. You got a big picture of that, me going out there, and you two can gang up on me. No, that's N-O. I ain't going no place with you. You got it wrong. I have, have I? Well, I'll just show you. Let's we are the police. You want another cop? Well, please. Sit down. Oh, he's all right. I know what I'm licked. You have to shove me around anymore. You just leave me alone. That's all. Just leave me alone. You got some hot coffee? Yeah, sure. I'll get it. Bring it back to this booth here, will you? Come on, everything's going to be all right, lady. All right, No, it isn't. Not ever again. Not ever. All right, sit down there. 
There's a handkerchief. Thank you. I never did anything like that before. That's all right. I guess I'm arrested. Not yet. I didn't mean anything by it. Nothing. Just I didn't know you guys, and then I was a little drunk. Just all of a sudden, I wanted to hit something. That's all. Just hit something. You were handy. Here's your coffee. Thanks. You want cream or sugar? No, what? Anything I can do for you? No, that's all. I'll be up front if there's one. Go ahead, miss. Try the coffee. Might make you feel better. Oh, yeah. It's hot. I'm sure sorry about hitting you. That's all right. It wasn't really. It was nice of you to say so. What were you going to ask me when all this started? You want to take a look at this picture here and tell us if you know the man? Sure. I guess I owe you that. Is it guy? Yeah, that one there. Oh, sure. It's Jarvis. Last name Dean? Yeah. What do you know about him? Guy. Had a couple of drinks with him. You know where he is? Not now. Saw him this morning. Had a cup of coffee. Haven't seen him since then. Is he still in town? I don't think so. You know where he is? No. Tell you run up to L.A. on some business. Mm-hmm. Did he say what kind of business? No. We didn't talk much about that. You got any idea where Dean was going in L.A.? Mm-hmm. He didn't give me an address. Did he say when he'd be back? Uh-uh. That's what we had the beef about. He just shoved off. Said something about me and the guy up there. Said this fellow's in some kind of trouble. And that he had to try and square it. Did you say who it was? <sighs> Let's see. I'm not sure I can remember. It's pretty important. Mm-hmm. Now, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a... Uh, Bowen. Yeah, I had to see a guy named Bowen. You say what it was about? No. Not that I can remember. He just told me that he and this Bowen guy were on a deal together. Bowen was lost it up. Mm-hmm. Said he had to take care of him. The description of Dean's car that the girl gave us matched the one we'd gotten from our informant. We checked the room he'd occupied in Palm Springs. We talked to the local authorities. They agreed to check further on the suspect. Frank and I left for Los Angeles. The following morning, we contacted Captain Bernard. It all goes together. Huh? You better find him fast. Why? Something wrong? I don't know, but it could happen. What do you mean? Bowen was released on a writ last night. Additional bulletins were gotten out on both men. Bowen's house was put under surveillance, and all of his known hangouts were watched. Two days passed without word. And then on Thursday, March 10th at 10.57 a.m., Frank and I got back to the office from checking out a lead. Ready? Yeah. Note in the book for you. Important. Thank you. What is it? I'm supposed to call the sheriff's department. Hmm. Wonder what it is. I don't know yet. We'll find out. Well, I didn't figure you would, Joe, not until you made the call. Mm-hmm. Just wondered what it was. Dave Terry, please. Well, Dave, Joe Friday. No, we haven't. Where? Any idea when that happened? No, we better come over and see you. Right. Bye. We're in trouble. What do you mean? I don't know. I found a body out on the desert this morning. Looks like it was a hit and run. Bowen? No, Jarvis Dean.
Frank and I left the office and went over to the Hall of Justice where we met with Sergeant Dave Terry. He showed us the photographs taken at the scene and the reports filed by the officers who discovered the body. From the appearance, it had been struck by a car traveling at high speed. A thorough search had been made of the area, but no trace of Jarvis Dean's car could be found. There was no apparent explanation as to how he'd gotten out on the desert. Another local on an APB was gotten out asking that Cade Bowen be picked up for questioning on suspicion of murder. A week went by. There was no word of the suspect. Border stations had been alerted in the event he tried to escape into Mexico. Checkpoints at the California-Nevada border had descriptions of both the car and the suspect. Saturday, March 19th, Frank and I got back from the stats office. Well, that's another dead end. Yeah. Where to now? Well, we can check with the skipper, see if he's got any ideas. All right. Come on in. Where you been? Been looking for you. Stats office. They just finished a run. They didn't come up with anything. You don't need it. Huh? You got half the country looking for Bowen, and he's in your pocket. What do you mean? Main jail. Picked up last night in 502. Cade Bowen had been picked up the night before at the corner of 7th and Hill Streets. He'd been observed by a radio car driving in an erratic manner and had refused to stop when the officers directed him to. After a 10-block chase, he'd been halted, but when the officers asked to see his identification, he told them he didn't have any. He was taken to the main jail and booked on charges of drunk driving. A check of his fingerprints had revealed his name and we were notified. His car had been impounded and the crime lab was going over it. We had the suspect brought to the city hall. What is it this time? I held up the Federal Reserve? All right, come off it, Bowen. You know where you're sitting now. This is the last time around for you. Yeah, I've heard that before. You won't hear it again. Where you been for the last week? Sleeping. All right, now where? Any place I could find a soft mattress... Hey, you guys ought to pull some strings and get some new bedding over the main jail. Those bunks are hard. Sure. You know a man named Jarvis Dean? Hmm? Jarvis Dean, do you know him? Might. That's no answer. That's the best I can do. Look, mister, we're getting tired of playing with you. You're in trouble, and it doesn't come in any bigger sizes. Now, I'm not going to tell you to play it smart because you wouldn't know what I was talking about, but you snap to and answer these questions. Now do you know Jarvis Dean? I met him. When did you see him last? A couple weeks ago. We understand he was with you on the burglary. It's a fairy tale. We got it straight. I didn't know you listened to gossip. Where'd you get the car you were driving last night? I bought it. From who? Used car dealer. Well, then you tell us why it's registered to Jarvis Dean, will you? Well, I don't know anything about that. Last time we talked to you, it was for a burglary beef. It's a lot more serious this time. That's so. That's right. Suspicion of murder. <laughs> Who'd I kill? Jarvis Dean. You're out of your head. We always are. Now tell us why he'd let you drive his car. I don't know if it is his car. Department of Motor Vehicles says it is. We checked it. All the stolen merchandise was found. Now, you got no right to go through my things. Last time we heard of the stuff, Jarvis Dean had it. What's the matter? Did you have a fight about what to do with it? Maybe you got sore because he was letting you carry the beef yourself. That what happened? Come on, Bowen, you're boxed in. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, let's check the office, see if there's any word from the crime lab. I'll do it, then. Tell you what, cop. Hmm? You win, I'll tell you. About Dean? I don't know anything about him. I'm talking about the burglary. Yeah. I did it. You don't have to go any further. No deal. We got you on something bigger. I think we can make that hold up. Look, I'm willing to cop out to the other. How'd you do? Well, here's the report. Well, that wraps it up. Yeah. All right, Bowen, let's go. Huh? We don't have to talk to you anymore. The crime lab just finished going over the car. Yeah. They found where you had that fender repaired. Well, some drunk ran into me. They checked the springs underneath, found traces of fabric, matched the jacket Dean had on when he was killed. We got enough to make you on it. You can't prove I was driving the car, now. there's no way you can prove it. We think we can. Go ahead. You just take it into court. Try. 
By the time you get through, the judge and the jury will be laughing. Is that right? Sure, they'll tell you how far out you are. They'll laugh right in your face. They'll tell you something, too. Yeah. And they won't be laughing. The story you've just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On July 16th, trial was held in Department 98, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. Cade Neal Bowen was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree and received sentence as prescribed by law. On recommendation of the jury, he was sentenced to life imprisonment in the state penitentiary, San Quentin. You have just heard Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action, and starring Jack Webb, a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. The episode called The Big Revision from the spring of 1955 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. When someone with a distinguished career passes away at the age of 106, it's as much a cause for celebrating life as for mourning their death. Such was the case last month when we lost the notable actor, director, and producer Norman Lloyd. We were as heartened by the many appreciations and obituaries he received in the media as we were wistful at his passing. Most of those tributes mentioned his film and television work, but he was a veteran of just about every important theater company of the 1930s, including Eva Legallien's Civic Repertory, The Federal Theater Project, The Group Theater, and Orson Welles's Mercury Theater. As you can imagine... Mr. Lloyd did a lot of radio, and a lot of the very best radio, on such shows as The Columbia Workshop and The Cavalcade of America. We'll hear him on both of those programs next week as part of our Fourth of July celebration. Right now, though, we're going to hear him with Groucho Marx as part of an all-star cast in one of the most famous radio plays of all time, Norman Corwin's The Undecided Molecule. He plays the clerk in a fanciful courtroom comedy written in verse by the masterful Mr. Corwin. Here from July 17th, 1945, and CBS is a brief excerpt of The Undecided Molecule from the series Columbia Presents Corwin. Tonight, in the third of a limited series of eight broadcasts for CBS, Norman Corwin brings you The Undecided Molecule, a rhymed fantasy concerning dangerous developments among the elements, as disclosed by Robert Benchley, Norman Lloyd, Groucho Marx, Vincent Price, Sylvia Sidney, Keenan Wynn, and the music of Carmen Dragon, conducted by Lud Gluskin. The Undecided Molecule. <laughs> 
The Court of Arbitrations and Adjudications of Physiochemical Relations, Department of the Interior of the Atom, Criminal Sitting, Division of Investigation, Charge, Countercharge, Accusation and Confession, is now in session. The Court will rise and face the Justice who will adjust this case. See that your concentration centers on his honor, the justice, just as he enters. Which he is doing even now. Everybody bow! Everybody bow! (coughs) (coughs) To it. Contrary notwithstanding, uh, you may sit. Clank, read the charge. May it please the court, it all to wit. It pleases the court. Get on with it. Whose voice is home? The cosmos and all the spheres, systems, clusters, galaxies, orbits, planets, satellites, Mm. together with all species of animals, vegetables, and minerals appertaining thereto, Mm. of all conditions of age, social standing, and sex, Mm. versus the anonymous molecule hereinafter referred to as X. Hmm. What's the charge against uh, said molecule? Unwilling to be named, rebelling when defined, declining to be blamed, objecting when assigned, protesting when selected, resisting an attack, refusing to be directed, and talking back. Oh, serious, most dangerous, so strange, it's almost strangerous, insidious, precarious, a shade below nefarious. The possibilities in sight are frightful, meaningful of fright, and rueful, meaningful of rue, and gruesome, meaning... Uh, Rather grew. Providing, Your Honor, the charges are true. Oh, why, yes, they, they must be proven true. Which is something we have yet to do. Quite right, but uh, who was asking you? Groucho Marx, bantering with Norman Lloyd in Norman Corwin's The Undecided Molecule in the summer of 1945. Mr. Lloyd passed away last month at the age of 106. This is the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. No writer in all of American literature is more identified with Broadway than Damon Runyon. His stories, rich with the slang of the guys and dolls, as they were known, of Midtown Manhattan, in fact formed the basis of the Broadway musical with that title. The irony is often noted that Mr. Runyon was not really a Broadway guy. He was born in Kansas, Manhattan, Kansas, of course, and reared in Pueblo, Colorado. But no one has ever captured the world of the gamblers, showgirls, and hustlers of the Great White Way better than Damon Runyon. His stories also served as the basis for a radio series, and we're going to hear the audio adaptation of one of his most famous tales right now. It's the story of an extraordinary IOU, Little Miss Marker. It comes from October 10th, 1948, Mayfair Syndication and the Damon Runyon Theater. Once again, the Damon Runyon Theater brings you another story by the master of storytellers, Damon Runyon. And this, one of his most famous, Little Miss Marker. 
And to tell it to you, here is Broadway. Thanks. This is Broadway speaking. Maybe you know a guy we call Sorrowful Jones. He makes a living by making book. <laughs> that is to say, he is slightly illegal because he takes bets on the horses if one is not able to get to the track due to circumstances. Most of the guys and dolls along Broadway tell you that Sorrowful is a rich man. That is true. It is true because Sorrowful not only remembers the first nickel he makes as a boy, but the same nickel is still in his possession. All at once, Sorrowful is a changed man. And how it happens that Sorrowful has changed is quite a story, which I will tell you in a minute. And now back to the Damon Runyon Theater and Little Miss Marker. As I am saying, Sorrowful Jones is a character who is not liked. He gets his name from the fact that anything like a smile is a stranger to his long face. Well, as it happens, I am sitting in Mindy's one night, along with a citizen named Regret, who is a horse player. We are discussing Sorrowful Jones when Regret looks up and says, And if you are speaking of the devil, you may look toward the door and see same. Sorrowful Jones coming into Mindy's? There must be a catastrophe outside which drives him in. Look, he's got a doll with him. A doll? But a midget one. Oh, it is no midget. This is a small doll, a child. He's coming over. And the chances are better than a million to one that he will have a sad story. About the little doll? About anything. Hello, Broadway. Hello, Sorrowful. Hello, Regret. Hiya, Sorrowful. Is this seat taken? Uh, no, Sorrowful. I'll take it. Are you driven from your home, Sorrowful? No. Uh, maybe you are out this late collecting bets? No. You are hungry? No. Uh, Sorrowful, who is that with you? This is a child, a small one. Yours? I do not own her. She is very cute, Sorrowful. I haven't looked much at her. What are you doing with her? I figure maybe she's hungry. She's been in my place all day since early this morning. And what is a small dolly? Uh, my experience has been with the larger variety. But if this one runs to the phone, she will eat quite a lot. That'll be expensive. I'm always the fall guy. Why do I have all the bad luck? <laughs> please, please, don't laugh, Regret. I have a very bad day today. Look, uh, Sorrowful, maybe if you tell us where this here doll comes from and what you are doing with her... It's a story, a sad one. Uh-huh. This morning, a character comes into my place of business, wants to play a deuce. He doesn't have a deuce, but wants to give me a marker, so I'll put a bet on the horse for him. You? You? You trusted somebody? Uh, this character tells me he'll leave his kid. This one. As security for his bet. He says he'll come back with a two-spot later. And so? His horse loses. I am out two dollars. Who is this character? I don't know. I never see him before in my life. But I figure no guy will leave his kid and not come back. I figure wrong. Oh. Does any of you wish a small doll? I cannot use one. It looks like you are stuck, Sarva. Yeah. She's probably very hungry and will cost me a fortune. Oh, I do not see how such a small doll could eat that much. How do I know? Talk to her. Why? Uh, wait a minute. Uh, hello, doll. Uh, let me try. <clears throat> Good evening, doll. Like I say, I'm out two dollars. Maybe I should leave the doll here on the chair, huh? Maybe somebody will call for us. Please, I, I want to go home. I'm sleepy. Awful sleepy. Maybe because it is after 2 a.m. Hey, she is going to sleep 
On your shoulder, Sorrowful? I cannot believe it. A doll putting her head on his shoulder? Hey, she's kind of cute with them blonde curls. Hey, look, doll, doll, you, you can't go to sleep on my shoulder. I never see a doll as cute as her. Look at that. She's snuggling up to you, Sorrowful. That's the way these dolls always thought. Soft soap first and then the bite. Oh, no, you are wrong, Sorrowful. This doll is too young to be that smart. Now, I can tell how old the horse is by looking at his teeth. Maybe if I looked at this doll's teeth... Regret, keep your hands off her. Huh? Sorrowful, all I want... She's not a horse. I, uh... Anyway, she's... She's sleepy. If she sleeps, she don't eat, and it don't cost me a fortune. You know, Sorrowful, I think she likes you. (laughs) What's wrong? Somebody should like me. It is somewhat unusual. Yeah? This kid's the first character that doesn't try to nudge me out of a fin or a ten spot. All she wants to do is sleep. Maybe I like her too. Anything wrong with that? Nobody said there is, Sorrowful. Look, uh, uh, what are you going to do, Sorrowful? I don't know, Broadway. It's a sin she can't sleep here. It is also a sin that you can't take her back to that joint you live in. It, it, it's only one little room. And, and there is quite a bit of noise from the, 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 the clubs along the street. Yeah, maybe you're right. Okay, I'll find a place. How do I get off this chair without waking up the doll? Get up easy. Slow. Like you're reaching for a check, which you never do. Wise guy. Grab hold of it tight, Sarkle. Yeah. Gee. She doesn't weigh as much as a herring. (laughs) Shut up. First guy wakes her up as the guy I slug. And as for reaching for the checks, you guys can be wrong. Give them to me. Sorrowful. I gotta go get a taxi. Good night. Taxi, he says. A taxi? I cannot pinch myself to see if I am dreaming because I cannot move. Well, that is that. Sorrowful walks out of Mindy's carrying the small doll, and we do not see him for three days until we get a message from him that says to come to a 59th Street address. We are all wondering about this because the address is a classy one overlooking Central Park, and there's no place that Sorrowful would hang around in. But we all show up in the apartment, Rigo, Big Sam, Little Mitzi, Harry the Horse, and several other citizens. It is maybe 8 o'clock at night, and Sorrowful has not come in yet. We are wondering about this when a door opens, and there stands Sorrowful. But what a Sorrowful. He is wearing a new suit. Now, now, that is something in itself, because nobody has ever seen Sorrowful in anything but the blue sight he picks up at a rummage sale years before. What's more, he is smiling, and it makes his long face look a little like a horse. But it is a smile. He walks over to us and begins the conversation as follows. Good evening, boys. Hi. Well, how do you like the place? Oh, it's a very classy place, Sorrowful. You are, uh... Keeping it for a friend, perhaps? This is my place, Broadway, and it costs plenty fish a month. I have a long-term lease. From here, you can see the park. And you can hear the handsome cabs. You know there are real horses in that park? No jockeys, though. But now I want to show you guys something. Okay, doll, come in. Look, it's the Boys, meet the doll. Hey, she is the small doll you bring into Mindy's the other night. That is correct, Broadway. You mean you still got her? That is also correct, Regret. But Sorrowful, she don't belong to you. Who says she don't? Well, who says so? 
Well, look, uh, Sorrowful, maybe the, the, the character who left the witcher will show up. That character was on a bet, and he leaves the doll as a marker. I keep the doll. But uh, what if he comes back? Shut up, Regret. Now. Marky, dance for you, Sorrowful. Not right away, honey. We'll keep that for a surprise, huh? You sit on my lap. Come on, doll. All right, Sorrowful. Up you come, baby. <laughs> Look at this doll, you guys. I never see a doll like this before. And she don't ask for nothing. Not a thing. Never puts the bite on me. I never know there's a doll like this any place. Well, she is a cute doll, Sorrowful, but uh, why are we here? Because I know nothing about a doll this size, and I figure I'm going to need help. But, from from us? From you, Harry. But, but... No buts. Today you lose 50 bucks on a parlor. You got the 50? Well, sorrowful, I... You have not got it. All right. We'll forget the 50. You are going to forget a 50? That's correct. Regret the same as I will forget the C-note for which you are on my books. The same goes for all of you. Broadway. Uh, Yeah, sorry. You know's around town pretty much. You ought to pick out a nurse, a housekeeper, a good one. Where am I to find such a character? You'll look. Harry, you will put your attention right here. You will go out and buy clothes, lots of them. With my money? I will open charge accounts at the stores. Now, if anybody does not want to help, then I will see to it that outstanding debts owed to me by some citizens are collected the hard way. We will help you, Sorrowful. After all, she is a cute little doll. Yeah, she is. Marky. Yes, Sorrowful? Tell him the story you told me this morning, huh? Which one, Sorrowful? Any of them, honey. Go ahead. Will they listen to me? They'll listen to you, Marky. Go ahead. All right, Sorrowful. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. How do you like that, huh? Uh, This kid knows more about literature than all of us put together. Marky, dance for you now, Sorrowful. Oh, you sure will, honey. Uh, Sorrowful, I got an engagement. That's right, Harry, right here. Go ahead and dance, Marky. Regret switch on that radio. Okay, Sorrowful. You watch Marky now, Sorrowful. You bet, honey. Go ahead. Personally, I prefer to show it to Hotbox. The uh, dolls are a little larger. Shut up and watch. Well, we watch Marky Dance. We listen to a tell story until 3 a.m. Sorrowful never gets tired, and he never stops smiling. It is easy to see he is taken, but good. And it goes on like that for days. And it's wonderful what the various citizens say about the change in sorrow. It is even said that he is good for a touch now and then. Uh, provided the touch is not of too generous proportions. Well, one night several of us are sitting in the hot box, listening to the music and watching the guys and dolls, when something happens as follows. How come you don't bring Marky along, Sorrowful? The housekeeper says it's bad to keep her out until 2 a.m. every night. Oh, I do not believe that. Look at me. Look at regret. Nevertheless, she's in bed where she belongs. Besides, it's snowing outside. It's cold. Yeah. Ah, she sure is a cute little doll. Mm-hmm. You are a lucky man, Sorrowful, to have such a ready-made family. Yeah, I... 
What's the matter? I gotta get out of here. What's eating you, Sorrow? Look, coming in the door. That is Milkier Willie. He looks mad. He is mad. Today we have a slight argument over a parlay bet he claims he wins. Milkier Willie is no citizen with whom to have an argument. Look, I'm leaving by the back way. You don't know where I am, see? Okay, Sorrow. I cannot see him till he cools off somewhat. I'll, I'll go and... Go ahead. Yeah, it's too late. There are some of Milkier's boys at the back. Uh-oh. He sees you. Sit tight. Hello, Sorrowful. Hello, Milkier. Broadway, how are you? Never waste in my life. It's too bad. Regret how the horses. Oh, uh, the ones I pick have three legs only. Funny thing is, I pick a good parlay bet today. Don't I, Sorrowful? You do not have a parlay bet today. There is some doubt between us. I think we will clear that up. I will sit down. What do you want? You, Sorrowful. Now look, Milky. Get up and start moving to the door, just like nothing is happening. Milky, you can't. Broadway, I like you, so I will thank you to stay out of this little argument. All right, Sorrowful, on your feet. We are going for a ride. It is snowing outside. It is not a good night for a ride. Sorrowful will not worry about the weather. All right, I said on your feet and move out ahead of me now. All right, Milky. But there are witnesses. They will not talk, will you, boys? Like I say, they will not talk. Get moving, Sorrowful. That's it. Stay right in front of me and smile. So they move away from us, and I figure that this is the last time we will see Sorrowful. But then something happens which alters things slightly more than somewhat. And I will tell you about that in a minute. Back to the Damon Runyon Theater and the famous story, Little Miss Marker. Well, like I am saying, Milkier and Sorrowful move away from us, and we think this is the end. But they are not more than three steps away when something happens as follows. Marky, Marky, Peter, get out of here. No. You left me his own, Sorrowful. Look, honey, you shouldn't come out. You got only your nightgown on. I miss you, Sorrowful. Sorrowful, get this kid away. I don't know how you got out, but you go back. Marky, you want to stay with Sorrowful? I got a good nose to let you have it, kid or no kid. Take it easy, Milkier. If anything happens to this kid, so help me, I'll break you in two. This ain't your kid. Yeah, it's my kid. Marky loves Sorrowful. Marky Starfoot's doll. That's right, honey. You're my doll. You dirty double-crossing Welsh. You're letting a kid pull you out of this. Leave this doll out of our argument, Milkier. I love you, Starfoot. I love you, too, honey. Come on. Up you come. That's the doll. Starfoot's going to take you home. Marky, dance first? Not tonight, Marky. you got to go home. you got to get out of this wet nightgown. There'll be another time, Starfoot. Sure. Sure they will, Milky. But you better not try to stop me now, do you understand? You better not try to stop me now. And what happens is that Sorrowful turns his back on Milkier, and without even looking back once, he carries Marky out of the club, her blonde head snuggled on his shoulder. But that is not the end. It seems that Marky catches a bad cold because of the wet nightgown. And Sorrowful will have it no other way 
but that she goes to the best hospital in town. And all the citizens who know Marky are right there, too. We are waiting outside Marky's room when Sarah comes out. How is she, Sorrowful? Not good, Harry. She... Well, she looks like she's got pneumonia. Oh. Uh, what's... What's the doc say? Nothing, Broadway. Move over. I want to sit down. Sure. Anything we can do, Sorrowful? I see you boys to stay here with me. Oh, there's nothing, Sorrowful. We... We... We want to stay with Marky, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. It's funny... A few weeks ago, I'm, I'm just a bookie. Today, I... I... Listen, that kid's got to get better. Sure, Sorrowful, sure. That's right, she will. Look, look, look at the papers. Somebody thought a big shot was here because all the boys were coming to the hospital. But we told them about Marky. Look, look, look at the story. <laughs> we're all here. Yeah, that is right. We're all here. Milky. I have a tough time catching up with you, Sorrowful. You're not in any of the joints, but I read the papers and... Uh, uh, look, Gear, uh, you don't know what's happening. But I know what's going to happen. Come on, Sarapu, we got a date. Get out of here. Get out. Sure. And you go with me. Mr. Jones, uh, Mr. Jones. Doc, what's the matter, Doc? I think you better come in. She wants to. Sure, sure, right away. No, you don't. Not this time. You heard the doc. I got to go in there. Not without me. I'm going in that room, Milk here. All right, but you're coming right back out. And just to see that nothing happens, everybody's going in. Come on, Broadway, Harry, move. Uh, Not all of you, just Mr. Jones. Everybody goes in, Sawbones. Move out of the way. But shut up. Here I am, Marky. How do you feel, baby? I'm awful tired. And I want to dance. In a little while. Sure. Hey, it's... Is this the same kid that comes in the club that night? Yeah, yeah, the, the same kid. Hey, hey, she looks pretty sick. Marky. Marky, you got, you're going to get... You're going to get better, huh? For sorrowful? Marky, love sorrowful. Marky. <laughs> is... Is he crying? Yeah. He is, What's the matter? You can't do anything for this kid. We have, but she needs the best specialist. Specialist? Who? Get him, will you? I don't care what it costs, but get him. I'm sorry, but Dr. Beerfeld is retired now. He handles only special cases. This is special. Get him. You don't understand, Mr. Jones. He's very high-priced, and unless you are very well-known, he won't touch the case because he's retired. Is this Beerfeld in the city? Yes. Sorrowful? Yeah. What, Milkier? You're uh, really nuts about this kid, huh? I guess I am. Wait here. I'm going to get this beer felt. With that, Mark here leaves the room. It's not more than a couple of hours later that we're all sitting in the hall outside Marky's room when Milk here comes back. He's got some of his boys with him. And walking fast in front of them is a short, fat little guy in pajamas. His hair is almost, and his eyes are popping from his head. Are you all arrest Boys, this is Dr. Beerfeld. He is here. You, you, you thugs, you, you gunmen. Doc, you did come. These lawless idiots came and got me. He does not want to come at first, but we use persuasion. I tell you, I will have you all arrested, convicted, sentenced. Look, Doc, Doc, you got to help. 
You're the only one who can. I will help none of you, you, you gorillas. Kill yourselves off, but I will not save one like you. I will Doc, not. It's it's my kid. My my Marky, she's she's got pneumonia. I tell you I will not submit to this outrage for one of your Did you say a child? Yeah, mine, Doc, my kid. My doll, Marky. Child, why don't you say so in the first place? Where is she? Right there, Doc, in that room right there. Good. Wait out here. And somebody, please get me some pants. Doc. Doc, I thought you were never coming out. How is she? Uh, she's a very sick baby. Uh, four in the morning. It was a long night. And the fever's broken. Yeah. She, she, she'll be all right, huh? Uh, your daughter will be all right. Oh, Broadway. Huh? Harry, Mitzi, Milky, wake up. Yeah. Wake up, Mark. He's going to be okay. The doc says so. It's all okay. Oh, I'm awful glad, sir. Doc, you are a very lucky guy. I am? Why? Three guesses. Well, I guess that is that. I guess I got to thank you, too, Milky. I, uh... Uh, no kid. You... I'll go with you now. Huh? Maybe I could be wrong about that parley, Sorrowful. It could be I am wrong. I think you're right about it. Stop in my place later and I'll get it off my books. <laughs> <laughs> Where is she? Little girl. Your little girl. Yes, yes, I read it in the paper. She, oh, Mr. Jones. You, huh? You come back, huh? Where is she? Is she all right? I do not understand. Are you talking about the same child? Yeah, the same doll. She's in that room. Is it? Is it all right if I go in? It is not. Let him go, Milkier. He's her father. I'll be right back. Well, uh, I don't know like him. I, I will go now. Oh, send me your bill, Doc, will you? I... Sorrowful Jones is the name. Anybody will tell you where I am. All right. Goodbye. Sorrowful? You're going to give up Marky? Got any ideas? But look, Sorrowful... He's our father. Maybe I kind of know how he feels. Especially after tonight. But Sorrowful, he gave her to you. Gave her to you for a marker. He's our father. A real father. And I'm thinking that maybe... I'm not so good for the doll. That character is? Shut up. She's, uh, she's sleeping. I didn't want to wake her up. Uh-huh. Broadway. Yeah? Come on in with me. Sorrowful. Sorrowful. You going to answer her, Sorrowful? No. She... She's just talking. In her sleep. Nothing sorrowful can do about it. Marky does belong to her father, whom we find out is a kind of a black sheep, but he is due for a lot of money when his grandfather leaves it to him. Sorrowful does not even bother to ask him what becomes of him that day he leaves the dollars a bargain. Well, it is a funny thing, but it happens that Sorrowful changes again. He puts back on the old blue sage suit, he gives up the classy joint on 59, and he loses his smile. But it is not until some days later that the payoff comes which I will tell you in a minute.
like I am saying, the payoff comes some days later. It is one night when I am sitting in Mindy's with Sorrowful, talking about it. It's better this way, Broadway. The doll has nothing with me. She almost died because she comes out that night looking for me. Yeah, maybe you are right. Look. Hmm? That's Marky's father coming in. Yeah, that's him. Looks like he's looking for someone. Yeah, he's coming over. Are you going to let him have a snoop full of fingers, Sorrowful? Quiet. Gee, I've been looking all over for you, Mr. Jones. They, uh, they told me I'd find you here. They tell you the truth. You, uh, mind if I sit down? Go ahead. Thanks. Well, look, Mr. Jones, I, uh, I don't know how to begin, but, uh, well, uh, well, just any time you want to come and see Marky, you'll be welcome. Thanks. But I'm never that far uptown in the classy neighborhoods. Oh. Uh, well, I, uh... I know you went to a great deal of trouble for Marky, clothes, everything, and that hospital bill. Now, my grandfather's very wealthy, and he's willing to pay. And we do owe you something, don't we? Yeah, I guess you do. I guess you do. Fine, fine. All you have to do is name it. My grandfather will pay it. Sure. I'll trouble you to send it to me so I can get you off my books. Of course. Uh, how much does it come to? I got it marked down right here in my little book. You owe me two dollars for the bet you blew that day. And so ends the story of Little Miss Marker, another famous Damon Runyon story. Listen in again next week for... The Damon Runyon Theater. The Damon Runyon Theater with John Brown as Broadway is directed by Richard Sandville and the stories adapted for radio by Russell Hughes. This is a Mayfair production. Little Miss Marker, the classic Damon Runyon story from the Damon Runyon Theater in the fall of 1948. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Well, in a program devoted to Broadway and its theater, co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and I can't take credit for a lot of imagination in picking an episode of Broadway Is My Beat that's set in a theater. But it is a perfect choice, even if it is set in a vaudeville theater. The script, with its gloriously overwrought noir prose is by those radio masters Morton Fine and David Friedkin. From CBS, it's the July 21st, 1949 episode of Broadway Is My Beat. Broadway's My Beat. From Times Square to Columbus Circle, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway's My Beat, with Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover. Broadway, where night slips over the canyon streets like a black silk stocking splashed with spangles. Then it's a flashy showgirl on an after-theater date. But during the day, it wears a sleazy house dress, no makeup on its face, and stands on a street corner screaming. 
Day or night, it wears any face you're looking for. And it's my beat. The coolest place at police headquarters on a July afternoon is in the communications room. But it wasn't cool enough. Sergeant Tartaglia and I were taking turns standing under the fan. It was my turn. The sergeant walked over to a teletype machine, picked up the latest call sheet, came back. He was smiling. Hmm. Oh, this heat, Danny. It's rough on the police, but fine for the law and order. Uh, The phone buzzer, Sergeant. Your number. Yeah. Sergeant Tartaglia. Yeah. Yeah, where? Yeah, got it. What time? 1.12 p.m.? Yeah, right away. What are you up, Sergeant? Ah, it was too good to last. 30 call. Homicide. Be with you in a second, Danny. Okay. Commissioner, Sergeant Tartaglia, reporting a homicide, sir. Dodge Theater on 46th Street, Bordeville House. Yes, sir, a performer. Right. Sergeant Tartaglia speaking. Put this on the wires. Special to squad cars 19, 22, and 69. Special to homicide. Special to chief of detectives. The special detail. Hey, wait a minute. Now, that's you, Danny. Got it? Dodge Theater. 30 call. Performer murdered, right? Right. You squad car 47. See you. Yeah. Okay. Back to you. Special to technical research laboratory. Special to Kong. To ballistics. Your squad car stabs, tears, rips through a city, and its wail is like a piece of broken glass that slices across its face. You can see the terror silent and quick in the blur of the city making way for you. It was maybe 1.25 when I hit the alley leading to the stage door of the Dodge Theater and twisted the car into it. It must have been a comedy act playing in front of the heavy and stained velvet curtain. The laughter and the music from the orchestra pit cut through from the front of the theater and washed against a wall of grim and blank faces backstage. Under the naked yellow glare of a single stage work light lay a man in a glittering sequin-covered suit of tights. He lay there like some muscular statue torn from its pedestal. But the web of blood told you it was a lie. The ballistics man, the medical examiner, the photographer, the fingerprint man, technical research, all worked and moved silently, weaving their way from shadow into light and back again. Then out of the shadows, a dapper little guy named Georgie walked over to me. Danny, Danny, am I glad to see you. Hi, Georgie. How are you? These other guys, your colleagues, they're cold, very, very cold. But you, you're warm and friendly. Yeah, it's a hot day, isn't it, Georgie? You think so, Danny? I keep telling these guys in the front office, the air conditioning in this theater, oh, boy, it's a lie, a fable, an illusion. Rough on a house manager, huh, Georgie? No air conditioning. Now, this... You're so right, Danny. How will it look on the report when I tell the front office... There was a murder act in the theater, and I didn't even give it billing. <laughs> Bad joke, huh, Danny? You told me better ones. Now, tell me about the man, Georgie. The, uh, dead one? The dead one. Who? What? Maybe why? Who? He was an athlete from Vienna. He was an acrobat. His name was Prokosh, Otto Prokosh. And, uh, he was an athlete of muscle and steel. A filthy, rotten brain and a nice, clean body. Now, that brings us to why. I had a reason why. You want to hear my reason, Danny? You lay yourself wide open that way, Georgie. Doesn't matter. I don't believe in wasting time. This I understand from how he once been an usher at the Roxy. Shall I write it down? If you want to. This dead Adonis. This this murdered Achilles. 
There's filth called Otto, making tempting noises into the ears of my wife. You don't have to answer this one if you don't want it, Georgie. Did she listen? My wife, Ruth, I shall have to ask her herself. You'll find her in dressing room six right up those stairs. I'll ask her later. Now, tell me how it happened. Ah, this I wouldn't know. I was in the front office counting the house, the way a manager should. Oh? Yes, Danny, yes. And you can check on it, too. Yeah, and I will, George. Uh, uh, Danny, you'll have to excuse me a minute. Say, has anybody seen Lee Emery come in? Has anybody seen Lee? Pardon me, will you? I work here. i got to get on stage. Sure, in a minute. Who are you? Lee Emery, dancer. I dance for the people. What are you, an agent? You're late, Emery. Georgie's over there looking for you. Oh, what's he got to worry about? He's a manager. I'm a dancer. I'm never late. The people are waiting for you, dancer. But stick around. I want to talk to you. I'm from the police. But of course there's been trouble. Murder. But of course I'll stick around. Yeah, we get on stage. There's your music. Okay, Georgie, okay. Georgie, what was that dressing room number? Six. Uh, six, Danny, six. Yeah, six. Yeah, what are you... No autographs, please. I'm Danny Clover, police. Looking for Ruth Houston. Georgie said she'd be here. Well, Georgie always knows where Ruth is, doesn't he, Ruth? He always knows. Except he finds it tough to keep up with a fast package like I. Pay hey, no attention to Shelley, Mr. Clover. Shelley's a comic. He makes jokes. Well, Shelley Sheldon, I, I've seen you. Oh, you've lived. You don't have to talk to policemen if you don't want to, Ruth. I know a lawyer who says it's all right not to talk to a policeman. You take advice from this comedian, Mrs. Houston? What do you want to know? Georgie was telling me about Otto, the acrobat. He said you could tell me more. Sure, I can tell you a lot. One, he's a beautiful man. Two, he made passes at me. Three, I loathed. Does that cover it, Mr. Clover? Maybe. Why are you at the theater today? I come down every day. I love Bloodville. Maybe it's because I make you laugh, huh, Ruthie? Girl needs a man who makes her laugh. And I'm the best. How did you feel about Otto, Mr. Sheldon? Shelley. Call me Shelley. Murder makes us all friends, doesn't it, Danny boy? Let's keep it formal. My suspects usually call me Lieutenant. Ah. Well, Lieutenant, I'll tell you about Otto. I hated his guts. He was egotistical, vain, selfish, arrogant, snobbish. He loved himself. No, no the kind of a guy I mean. It went like that. Vaudeville actors are just like any other people. They're scared. They're cooperative. They're uncooperative. Depending upon their attitude toward policemen and their own conscience. The agile little dancer named Lee Emery was different. I interviewed him in his dressing room. It was like no interview I ever had before. Lee Emery danced through it. A kind of weird, soft-shoe ballet to the music of a battered phonograph. It was as if he were a grotesque puppet on strings. And the strings were dangled from some place of strangeness in his brain. I had to blink. Does it bother you? My dancing, Lieutenant Clover? Clover. Clover. Thanks. That's interesting music you're dancing to. Interesting? Is it? That's interesting. Why is it interesting, Lieutenant? The music you danced to on stage earlier. Oh, I'm pleased. It struck you. You remember me as an artist. Well, it was played in a different tempo. Faster. And now it's a blues. Hey, watch. Oh, 
End of show, Lieutenant. Well, you're a fine dancer, Emery. Oh. Tell me, why the different tempos to your music? Doesn't it throw your performance off? Ah, not at all. You see, I had a half a dozen records made of this music. All different rhythms. Mm-hmm. All different moods. Before each performance, I practice the one I shall do. Depends on my feeling at that moment. Oh, you don't feel good now, huh? Oh, Lieutenant, I'm in love with the world. Last night I took a walk in the Bowery. I talked with the poor, sodden fragments of humanity who people it. Now I'm disenchanted. Next performance, my dancing will be a mirror of that feeling. Oh, so the orchestra conductor will play your music as blues. Uh-huh. Must be a pleasure for him to work with someone as creative as you. Thank you. Dancing Lieutenant Plover is, is an ultimate within itself. The antics, the grotesqueries of humankind distilled into classic, flawless expression. Eh, now you say something philosophical, Lieutenant. Yeah, try this. Did you have any reason to kill that acrobat? But of course. As a performer, he was a bum. I wished him dead. From a purely artistic standpoint, of course. But you know what, Lieutenant? Tell me. I didn't kill him. I am a coward. You have music for that, too? But of course. Would you care to hear it? I didn't care to. Emery looked at me sadly, bowed, and I made an exit. The next morning at headquarters, the reports came in. Ballistics said the bullet had been fired through a silencer on a 38 frame. It entered the acrobat's shoulders with a downward passage. The shot had come from backstage, from somewhere high on the wings where peeling sets of scenery hung. Coroner's report, death was instantaneous. The solution of murder almost never is. I found Star- Sergeant D- Tartaglia out of the way and took my turn under the fan. That murder at the theater, Danny. A toughie, huh? Yeah, I don't know. It's too early to tell. Suspects? Any of them? Goes like this, Sergeant. House manager Georgie Houston hated the acrobat because the acrobat made grand passes at his wife, Ruth. Oh, jealousy's a good, sound, substantial motive, I always say. Yeah, I always say it's a 100% motive. A modest comic, Shelley Sheldon, he likes Ruth, too. Another 100% motive. Lieutenant Clover speaking. Lieutenant, I told you. I told you. Who is this? Lee Emery. I told you I was a coward, Lieutenant. So? A man. He was standing across the street for the last hour. What man? What are you talking about? Listen, listen to me. I don't know what man. He was watching the window of my room, and just a minute ago, he walked into this hotel. Lieutenant. Yeah, yeah, I'm listening. Lieutenant, there's someone opening the door. Lieutenant! Emery! Emery! You didn't need a cop's mind to put that shot and Emery's scream together. I thumbed through my notebook and got Emery's address. By the time I was downstairs, a squad car was waiting, its motor running. The siren channeled the street between headquarters and West 56. It took four minutes to get there. Emery's room was three flights up and walked back. The room was empty. No Lee Emery, nothing. Correction. The room was filled with Emery's music coming from the phonograph. That, the narrow streak of blood that wormed on the threadbare grass rug. But most of all, it was Emery's music. It was happy, real happy. I couldn't stand it. The room needed another quality. The quality that came after terror. 
A sigh, maybe, or silence. And I had the feeling Lee Emery had just bought himself a large piece of that. You are listening to Broadway's My Beat with Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover. One of the most successful dramas ever presented on the CBS Escape series will be repeated tonight. C.S. Montague's story entitled Action, the tale of a man who scales a mountain contemplating suicide and who finds a reason to live when he finally reaches the top. On Crime Photographer, you'll hear the fascinating tale of Durable Dennis, whose head was x-rayed to solve a $75,000 theft. In case someone tells you to get your head x-rayed, hear the story of Durable Dennis on Crime Photographer, as well as Action on the series Escape. They'll both be here just a little later tonight on most of these same CBS network stations. Now, back to Broadway's My Beat. Broadway is a place that can get happy about a lot of things. A cat in a tree, a wrestler with curls who scents the ring with perfume, even by a swami who predicts the world is coming to an end by high noon tomorrow. Right now, the current happiness was touched off by a rumor that Budville was coming back. But I had proof positive that it was dying all over again. Item, a dead acrobat shot while opening the bill at the Dodge Theater. Item, a terrified hoofer named Lee Emery who left only an afterimage of blood and music. Item, I had work to do. Work was routine. I called headquarters, told them to send out a missing person call on Emory, told them where I was going and went. When I got backstage, the Dodge Theater was making ready to put on its false face for the first batch of customers. Ruth Houston was standing against a backdrop, considering the lighted end of a cigarette. When she saw me, she looked as if she could do without me. Oh, hello, Lieutenant. You want to see me? Does that make it any worse, Mrs. Houston? Frankly, Lieutenant, there comes a time in every woman's life when she doesn't feel like talking to the police. And now is the precise instant, huh? It's like this, Lieutenant. I'm being sad. I'm being sad about a lot of things. Each one takes time. Yeah. But I'm afraid I'll have to interrupt the emotion. What's making you sad, Mrs. Houston? This, this whole thing will just wreck him. This, this thing of Otto's murder. Wreck who? My husband, Georgie. He had a good thing here at the Dodge. He was just going good. You get sad about Otto? I can do that, too. Otto thought he could beckon to a woman by flexing a bicep. He needed talking to. He, he didn't need killing. Maybe making muscles wasn't the reason he was killed. It's your job to think like that, Lieutenant. Tell me this, Mrs. Houston. How buddy were you with Lee Emery? Him? Him. Lee Emery. What could Emery do for me, Dan? Is he around now? I haven't seen him. He hasn't shown up for the show. You wouldn't know where he is. You took the words right out of my mouth. I wouldn't know where he is. I wouldn't want... Excuse me, Lieutenant. Sure. Hello? Hello? Yes? Yes, he's here. For you, Lieutenant, your office, or whatever you call your office. Thanks. Clover speaking. Danny! We got him, kid. We got Lee Emery. Yeah, where'd you find him? East River Docks. Anyhow, that's where we fished him out. 
He's newly dead, Danny. The wet gray heat had turned into a wet gray drizzle when I arrived at the East River dock. Three hooded cops on horseback held back a crowd whose face looked like it had a veil drawn over it. And in between the foghorns and the boat whistles, you heard the soft whinny of a horse. You couldn't quite believe it. Then a splash of blue named Mugovan, Harbor Police, cut through the grayness. Him you had to believe. Okay, okay, stand back, stand back now. Come on, Danny, hold my hand. I'll get you through this barrier of curious onlookers. Thanks, Mugovan. All right, out of the way. Out of the way now. Now, why don't you yokels get in out of the rain? Ain't you heard the song? It's wet outside. That's a great act, Mugovan. Add Danny, it builds. From hatred to love. The surly sneers of the mob become smiles of pleasure when I'm through molding their emotions. Oh, when you get a chance, mold me a ham sandwich, huh, Mugovan, on rye. Huh? You mean right now? No, not now. Now just tell me about him. Well, it's like you see, Danny. First they shot him in the face, twice. From up close, then they threw him in the river. How long did you say he was in the river? Not long, Danny. Just long enough to wash him clean. Yeah. Anything on him? Yeah. This wallet and these papers, social security card issued to Lee Emery. Maryland driver's license made out to the Emery. Description, as stated, adds up to the Emery. Except for complexion and color of eyes. That, naturally, we can't tell. And this initial ring with the initials L-E, that spells Lee Emery. Yeah, I've seen the ring. Do something for me, Mugovan. Sure. You still want that sandwich, Danny? Call headquarters for me. Have them pick up Georgie Houston, his wife, Ruth Houston, and a funny, funny boy named Shelley Sheldon. Sheldon? He's very funny. I get a lot of my material from him. Have them meet me at the morgue. I want them to identify a body. This is a cold place you pick for me to play a matinee, Danny boy. How do I get yaks in the morgue? I wouldn't know, comedian. You work it out. You know, this whole reminds me of a theater I once played in Des Moines. Same type atmosphere, same type audience reaction. I was making with bombs and those hasties just lay there like, like these stiffs. Shut up, <laughs> Shelly. Shut up. Haven't you got any respect? What's the matter, Georgie? The silent dead make you nervous? No, Shelly. They bring me peace. That's why I give them respect. Oh, Danny. Why did you bring us up here? I want you to identify a body that was washed up in the East River. Anybody we know? That's a good question. Here we are. figure is familiar, but the face... What am I saying? What face? What do you say, Georgie? The suit. Yeah, I, I recognize the suit. It's exactly the same type suit Lee Emery wore every day of his life. Mm. He had a maiden pairs. He always said if you found something that made you feel good, why change it? Is, uh, is that Lee Emery, Danny? Shelley, is this Lee Emery? Yeah, yeah. How do you know? The shoes. They're a dancer's shoes. Soft shoe type shoes. The kind of shoes a dancer like Lee Emery wears when he's doing soft shoe type dancing. Do I make it clear, Danny boy? No, no, I lived without you. Do you recognize this ring? Yeah, Danny. That's Lee's ring, all right. He hocked it with me once when he needed some dough. All right. Let's sell You... Mean we can go now, Danny? Yeah, you can go back to the theater, Georgie. They'll need you. Now, wait a minute, Danny boy. It's not that easy. Hmm? I've got a twist. I'd like to ask you some questions. I thought you'd have some. I'll try to answer them, Mr. Shelton. Lee Emery, the, the boy in the box. 
He was murdered, huh? We think so, Mr. Sheldon. That means you suspect that maybe Georgie or me murdered him. Could be, Mr. Sheldon. This is the snapper, policeman. What makes me rate so high in your favor? There are others who were involved with Lee Emery. Like who, Mr. Sheldon? Like any of the other people at the Dodge Theater. Like, like Ruthie, the wife of Georgie. Who are you, Thank you. Hold it, Georgie. I'd like to answer, Mr. Sheldon. The cop, Mr. Sheldon, looks for motive. A good motive for killing the boy in there would be that he knew who killed Otto, the acrobat. That could be you, Georgie, or Ruth. By the way, Georgie, where is Ruth? They're waiting for you to tell me why she isn't here. Why, she was at the theater last time I saw her. Why? She's not there anymore, Georgie. The boys upstairs tell me she's not anywhere. Maybe you can help the boys upstairs, Georgie. Danny, you... You mean you can't find her? You mean the whole police department can't find her? Danny. Danny, you've got to find her. You've got to. We will, Georgie. We will. Here you are, Sergeant. Send this call out over the intercom right away. Yeah, Danny. Attention, all cars. Attention, all cars. 3.25 p.m. Pick up Ruth Houston. Ruth Houston. She is 5 feet 4 inches tall. Weight, about 121. She has black hair. Black hair. Dark brown eyes. Attractive. Maybe in the company of a man. Maybe carrying suitcase. Check bus, rail, and plane terminals. Urgent. Get the squad car moving, Joe. Grand Central. Yeah. <laughs> Patrolman Michikov phone precinct headquarters at 3.45 p.m. Not in the... Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 5, 4, 121, black hair. Yeah, I got it. But, officer, that was a green light I just went through. I'm not sure that was a green light. Yeah, I know. Okay, you can go. I don't understand. Now you say I can go. Why? Because your eyes aren't brown. Tartaglia speaking. Yeah? Good. 14th Street Precinct? Right away. They got her, Danny. Holding her at the 14th Street Precinct. Let's go. Officer, where is she? In there with the matron. Nice work, fellow. There she is, Danny. You can go home, miss. You're not the right Ruth Houston. <laughs> Lieutenant Clover speaking. Danny, Muggin from Harbor Police. Yeah. We got something hot. Something directly from the laps of the guard. Don't make a production out of it, Muggerman. Just tell me what it is. Ruth Houston. Does the name bring a smile to your lips, Danny? Come on, come on, Muggerman. What's the story? As follows. I was in a coffee joint on the pier, like I always am at 9 p.m., so I can talk to my friend Marty Udenfreud, the cab driver, who my friend. We talk. And routinely I tell him this description of one Ruth Houston. Okay, so far, Danny? Muggerman, the night's so long and lonely in Flatbush. What about Ruth Houston? Marty has her for a fare about 7.30. Takes her to appear on the Hudson River. How did he know she was Ruth Houston? Oh, she was a looker. The description tallies in the initials on her suitcase was R.H. Go on. Then she gets on a boat. The good ship Christina, a freighter. Great. Hold that boat, Muggerman. Don't let it move. 
I hope you have good reason to delay the voyage of the Christina. What can we do for you, Lieutenant? Now just tell me where to find the girl who looks like this picture. Shelter, Muggerman. Here she is, Captain. A princess. Ah. Yeah, yeah, she's here. She and her husband. A husband. Oh. Your face looks like it is perhaps not her husband. Why did he get on board? Uh, it was very romantic. He boarded the Christina hours before we sailed. Locked himself in the cabin and waited for his young girl. Romantic, yeah? Yeah. Where's the cabin, Captain? I, I will show you. Just tell us. We want to meet them alone. It is down the end of this long passageway. The door on your left. Let's go, Mugavan. Stanley Clover, Mrs. Houston. Open up. Open up. Get back. Get back. Looks like the little lady don't want to see us. Looks like I'll have to open the door from this side. I think now it's okay for us to enter, Danny. Yeah. I heard her, Danny. Let me see. That's not too bad. Go get the captain. He'll know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I wasn't wrong. Phonograph. Some records. All right, Emery. Come out. I know you're here. Hello, Lieutenant Clover. I was coming anyway. That music attracts me. I thought it would. You okay? Sure. I ducked into the washroom when you started shooting back. Ruth's hurt, though, isn't she? Yeah. I'll take your gun. Here. You're clever, Lieutenant Clover. You're an artist. Only because you made a mistake. Play me my mistake. You shot that man's face away. At least more than just that trickle of blood you arranged in your room. But you know about things like that, Emery. Who was he? He was nothing. An absolute nothing. A zero. An empty circle. I knew you'd figure it that way. You told me you walked the Bowery for art. You walked it to find a derelict who was the same size, the same build as you. That was his only use, you figured. So you used it. <laughs> you killed him. You thought I'd believe you were dead. That leaves Otto the acrobat. Why should I kill the useful man like Otto? Ruth's being here tells me that, Emery. Otto likes her, too. Competition from a man like Otto frightens two lovers like you. So you killed him. But of course. Ah, uh, I said you were an artist. Now, if you'll pardon me, Lieutenant Clover. I didn't stop him. It needed a touch like that. Emery's dancing to a dirge. This time he danced as if the puppet strings from his brain had been cut away and the madness was complete. When Mugovan came back with the captain, they stopped in the splintered doorway and stood there. Just stood there. But in a little while, the dance was over. There's no fury on Broadway now. It's dawn. The angry avenues of the night are still. 
But in a few hours, it'll renew itself, the bang and the clatter and the rack and roar and the voice. Because it's Broadway, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway. My Beat. Broadway's My Beat with Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover is produced and directed by Gordon T. Hughes with script by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. Musical direction is by Lud Gluskin. Be sure to join us again next week, same time, same station, for Broadway's My Beat. It's a sealed room mystery, a favorite of detection connoisseurs on Mr. Keene tonight. The victim, a wealthy book publisher. The sealed room, an air-conditioned, windowless library bolted on the inside. Mr. Keene's latest case, Murder and the Bolted Room, will be along not very many minutes from now on most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Broadway is my beat. A backstage episode from Midsummer 1949 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. There's no more delightful way to pay tribute to the Broadway theater than to imagine a production of a typical mid-20th century play, as it was presented on the radio in the fantasy Little Theater off Times Square. That's what the First Nighter program invited its audience to do every week throughout most of the 1930s and 40s. As listeners, we designed the costumes, the sets, the lighting, and even the faces of the actors. In this particular play, those actors include Olin Soule and Verna Felton, the latter one of the most notable voices of all time. In addition to her radio and TV work, she provided the voices of such animated Disney characters as the fairy godmother in Cinderella, the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland, and Winifred the Elephant in The Jungle Book. And I left out her roles in Dumbo, Lady and the Tramp, and Sleeping Beauty. We don't know much about the author of this play, Forrest Barnes, but I'm guessing he had a lot of fun writing this one, because it's an almost perfect copy of the kind of light fare that was a standard part of a Broadway season back in the day. There are a couple of topical references to Ohio Senator Robert Taft and Hollywood actor Virginia Mayo. And it'll be helpful to know that theater producers are required to post a bond generally two weeks' pay and benefits, with the Actors' Equity Union. From June 17, 1948, and CBS, it's a play about the theater called Old Lady Shakespeare from The First Nighter Program. Campana's First Nighter Program. From the Little Theater off Times Square. Starring Olin Soule and Barbara Luddy with an all-star cast presented by Campana, 
the quality name in cosmetics. It's theater time on Broadway, where tonight a crowd of fashionable theater goers is gathering for the premiere of a new play at Broadway's famous Little Theater of Times Square. A long theater role, there's no attraction as thrilling as an opening night. Yes, the Great White Way will be seething with excitement tonight. And here is our genial host, Mr. First Nighter. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad you came along tonight. We have choice tickets and it's time to start. Here's my cab. Won't you step in? All right, driver, let's go. Up Broadway, across 42nd Street, and into Times Square. World-famous theater district. Flashing with spectacular electric signs and crowded with traffic. Now just ahead, there's the little theater off Times Square. Well, here we are. Say, he looks just like Senator Taft, doesn't he? I've seen her face before. Is that Virginia Mayo there photograph? Have your tickets ready, please. Have your tickets ready, please. Good evening, Mr. First Natter. The usher will show you to your seat. Thank you. We'll go right in. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, right in the middle of a distinguished First Night audience. Famous names and famous people are all around us. I see several movie actors, a well-known concert pianist, and hordes of who's who celebrities. But let's look at the theater program. Tonight's play is entitled Old Lady Shakespeare, a romantic drama written by Forrest Barnes. I see a notice above the cast of characters which says that Barbara Luddy is on her vacation. Her able partner, Olin Soleil, is starred this evening in the part of Rollo Ravenswood, a young actor. And his guest star this evening, playing the part of Laura Ravenswood, Old Lady Shakespeare herself, is that talented actress, Verna Felton. And what an all-star supporting cast, including Sammy Hill as Marion Cornwall, Herb Butterfield as Willie, Polly Bear, and other players of equal fame. But now Frank Worth and the famous First Nighter Orchestra are concluding the overture. The curtain is about to rise. Signal for first curtain. The house lights are out, and here's the play. Here you are, Laura. Nice hot beef tea. I don't want it. I know you don't, but drink it anyway. Beef tea. Thirty-five years ago, you were sending bouquets to me over the footlights. Now you're bringing me beef tea. I'm tired of it, Willie. I don't care if you are my doctor. I won't drink another cup. Here, give it to me. If you could just remember, darling, that you're 70 years old. Remember? you never give me a chance to forget it. What time is it? Four o'clock. Expecting someone? My nephew. Coming up to ask me a favor. Willie, I'm about to put on a delightful fight scene with America's most obnoxious juvenile. I forbid it, Laura. Uh, do you? You must realize that you're no longer young. If you say that again, Willie, I'll hit you over the head with something. We should go home. Drink your beef tea, Laura. I am drinking it. Come in. Don't shout like that. I'm not shouting. Oh, for heaven's sake, Rollo, come in. Hello, Laura. How's America's most beautiful actress? Oh, cut that line. I'm as ugly as sin and you know it. And how are you, Willie? Still hanging around? He's the only thing that keeps me alive. He said I was going to die 15 years ago. But I'll outlive the old buzzard if it takes me all my life. Oh, sit down, Rollo, and stop bouncing about. What's this I hear about you getting married to Sheila Dale? True. Getting married, her? Mm-hmm. On what? That's what I came to see you about, darling. Sheila Dale. Ugh. How I hate these fashion plate actresses. Can't hear a word they say back of the third row. You don't love her, Rollo. Of course I do. Nonsense. No, she you. 
just wants to marry the family name. Mrs. Rollo Ravenswood. Well, it would help her career. Help it? The name Ravenswood would make her a star. Rollo, I won't have it. Listen, Laura, I'm not asking your permission. I'll do as I please with my own life. What about Marion Cornwall? She's prettier than Sheila, and she's got more sense. But I don't love Marion. You do, too. Only you're such a fool you don't know it. Marion's a very nice kid. Nice. My dear boy, the Cornwalls were great actors and Sheila Dale's father was eating peanuts in the gallery. I can't love a girl because her grandfather was a great actor, can I? Why can't you? To start. Now, uh, what's the favor I'm to do for you? Laura, I haven't had a decent show in two years. I'm thinking of doing Romeo and Juliet. On my money? Something like that. Well, you're trying to make an angel out of me before my time, huh? And Sheila Dale is to do Juliet. How'd you guess? No. Not a penny will I spend to, to back a show for that 20th century magazine ad. Look here, Laura. I'm half the show, you know. Besides, Sheila's a very fine girl. She's an ambitious little schemer. Don't you contradict me, Rollo Ravenswood. All right, all right. Well, I wouldn't expect you to appreciate Sheila Dale. You boil so long in your own conceit, you can't admit anyone is good except a reflection of Laura Ravenswood. You get out of here, Rollo. Oh, you dare to criticize her. How would you be on the stage today? You're passe and you know it. Uh, Rollo, please. You can't ask for a cup of coffee without ranting. That's a grand exit speech. Get out. (laughs) That's a fine boy, Willie. (laughs) He's got spirit, the impudent puppy. Appreciate Sheila Dale. Uh, Willie, I think I'm going to faint. Here, lie here on the couch. No, 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 not... No, no, don't make a fuss. Don't make a fuss. Just, just let me lie still. I'll be all right. <laughs> Hello? Who? Marion Cornwall. No, Miss Ravenswood can't see anyone. Give me that phone. Hello? Tell her to come right up. This isn't wise, Lord. I never did a wise thing in my life, and I'm not starting now. <laughs> Willie, come here. Mm-hmm. Sit beside me. Mm-hmm. Willie... I left the stage at the peak of my career. I was lovely then, wasn't I? You were a dream, Laura. <laughs> you remember my last performance? New Year's Eve in 1927. Twenty-two curtain calls. You were there. Yes, I was there. You were radiant when you said, I leave the stage tonight. Stepping to my knit among the stars that others may have my place. That others may inherit those glorious roles that the future is to write. Oh, Willie, what's become of that Laura Ravenswood? I wasn't cross and ugly then. I was happy. What have I lost, Willie? Darling, you're the same underneath. You think I'm just a bluff. You're wrong. I'm as real now as I was then. The years change, people. I'll tell you what it is. All these years, I wanted to go back to the stage. I've been starving for applause, for praise. I hate being forgotten. It hurts, Willie, to sit back and watch other women have the crown I wore. It makes me bitter. Now it's too late. I'm not the beautiful Laura Ravenswood they remember. It isn't beauty we love. It's character. You've loved me all this time, haven't you? All this time, Laura. 
Yeah, well, you ought to be glad you didn't marry me. I'd have made your life miserable. Well, being your doctor hasn't been a picnic. Come in. Stop shouting. Oh, stop shouting yourself. Hello, Laura. My dear child, what are you crying about? Oh, Laura, I'm so miserable. Oh, I know. I know about Rollo and Sheila Dale. Oh, they're not married yet, my dear. Willie, isn't it time you were going? Oh, hello, Willie. Oh, don't cry on his shoulder. That's what he wants. Go on, beat it, Willie. Beat it. You never let me have any fun, Laura. Go on, go on, go on. <laughs> have you had a good cry? All the way up in the taxi. Good. Now we can talk sense. Listen, darling. Your grandfather was my best friend. The only man in the world who could steal a scene from me and get away with it. Now, I know you're in love with Rollo. I told him so not five minutes ago. Oh, you didn't? Certainly I did. Lame young jackanape is in love with you, too. But he's under the delusion that this Sheila Dale creature can act. <laughs> All the Ravenswoods are that way. The women they love must be actresses. Now, if Rollo could see you in a great part, he'd fall hook, line, and sinker. Oh, but, Laura, I've only done bits on the stage. <laughs> Just wait. I've got a brainstorm, darling. Laura Ravenswood is staging a comeback. You? Returning to the stage? After 21 years. I'm going to play the nurse in Romeo and Juliet. And you're going to be Juliet. Now, may I suggest we have a little talk with Larry Keating. Ladies... Talk about sensations in the world of beauty. Wherever you go these days, Magic Touch is getting peons of praise. The girls behind cosmetic counters are saying, quote, My customers are so wild about Magic Touch that honestly I have a hard time keeping enough on hand, unquote. And that's pretty good proof that Magic Touch is living up to its name, bringing new magic complexion loveliness to women everywhere. But look, perhaps you don't know what Magic Touch is. Magic Touch is a new, utterly different kind of makeup. You'll never know how pretty you can be until you try it. Magic Touch is a tinted cream makeup. It comes in a wafer-thin white and gold compact with a choice of six shades. You apply Magic Touch with your fingertips. No sponge, no water, no puff. Just stroke your fingers lightly over the creamy surface of Magic Touch, then apply and blend. Magic Touch is all you need to be beautiful. Gives you a flawless-looking skin, a feminine, delicate look. The new fashionable, unmade-up look. And here's pleasant news, too. You pay only $1 for the large compact of Magic Touch. Only 39 cents for the special introductory size. Get your compact of Magic Touch tomorrow. See how faultless your complexion can look this summer. Truly, you'll never know how pretty you can be until you try Magic Touch. are hurrying down the aisles to their seats. The lights are dimmed, and here's the second act of Old Lady Shakespeare. Oh, but Laura, do you think I can play Juliet? Any girl who doesn't think she can play Juliet has no place in the theater. Hand me that phone. Here. Operator, get me the Plaza Hotel, room 610. Oh, Laura, I'm scared. After seeing Jane Cowell do Juliet... You do I... half as well as Jane, and you'll still be tremendous. Do you think Rollo will like me? No, but he'll lose interest in that papier-mâché soubrette of his. Hello? Rollo? 
Uh, do you still want me to angel that show? All right. I've decided to play the nurse. Don't tell me that's marvelous. I know it. And Marion Cornwall does Juliet. Well, take it or leave it. Oh, what do I care about Sheila Dale? Oh, make her a head usherette. I'll have my way or else. <laughs> I thought you'd come to reason. What did he say? He's enchanted. Oh. Rallo, you will undoubtedly be America's most impossible Romeo. Oh, don't mention it. Is Rollo going to play Romeo? Yes. And he'll be magnificent. Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face. Else would a maiden blush repaint my cheek. Very pretty, Marion. Oh. But I hope you don't intend to play Juliet that way. Oh, well, I, uh, I didn't know you were there, Rollo. It's only half an hour till rehearsal, and I thought... You thought you'd find out how really bad you are reading Shakespeare. Darling, you're terrible. If it weren't for the old lady... Well, for that matter, if it weren't for Laura, you wouldn't be playing Romeo. Strange as it may seem, I'm not grateful. She's rich as Croesus, and nothing pleases her better than to help out another Ravenswood. Only she must do it in her own way. So she insists on making you my Juliet. You're just as spoiled as you were when we were kids and you used to pull my hair. Don't you think it's about time you stopped? We're grown up now. Oh, not really. <sighs> well, let's rehearse. What would you like to do? I know every scene. Oh, how quaint. Well, let's try this one. How silver sweet sound lovers' tongues by night. Like softest music to attending ears. Romeo. My dear. At what o'clock tomorrow shall I send to thee? At the hour of nine. I will not fail. Tis twenty years till then. I have forgot why I did call thee back. Let me stand here till thou remember it. Honestly, Marion, you don't give me a thing. Haven't you any feeling for the part? We're supposed to be a couple of kids in love with each other. Well, how can I have any feeling for you? You'll never forget the two minutes that you're Rollo Ravenswood, America's perpetual juvenile. Now, don't be nasty. I'd rather slap you than kiss you. Why don't you slap me, then, and get it out of your system? Uh, a very good idea. I've wanted to do that for years. Oh, oh Rollo, I, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Now I've spoiled everything. Well, not at all. There was nothing to spoil. Do you think I don't know why old lady Shakespeare's thrown us together? She thinks I'm going to fall in love with you. <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? Yes, isn't it? Terribly funny. Uh, she'd love a marriage between the Ravenswoods and the Cornwalls. Can't you see the headlines? America's favorite stage families united. Well, I'm in love with Sheila Dale, and that's that. Just because you grew up with me doesn't mean you have a mortgage on me. What a hateful thing to say. All Laura wants... Don't is... tell me what she wants. I know. She wants her own way about everything. She's trying to be kind to you. Uh, she doesn't know the meaning of kindness. After all, she is black in this play. Sure, and why? To stage her own comeback. To please her own selfish vanity. Oh, why don't you wake up, Marion? She's a cantankerous old tyrant. I hoped I'd find you here. Hmm? Rollo, what did you want to do that for? Do what, Willie? Send Sheila Dale up to see Laura. They've had a terrific row. Send Sheila... But I didn't. How dare she? Well, you can thank that beautiful vixen for a tragic finale. What... Oh, what's happened, Willie? Laura's heart's gone back on her. She had a spell after Miss Dale left, and she very nearly died. Oh, how dreadful. I must go to her. No, she's all right now. I left her sleeping. Laura dying? I can't believe it. Not Laura Ravenswood. I, I'd as soon think the theater was dying. 
I'm afraid there'll be no Romeo and Juliet problem. Oh, that doesn't matter. It's Laura. Why, I can't lose her. She stood by me when no one else would. Romeo? I thought... Oh, Marion, I was angry. I love old lady Shakespeare. She's a tyrant and all that, but underneath there's no one quite like her. It's funny to realize how much you love a person when you think of losing her. Well, aren't you disappointed that you'll have no play? Aye, what do I matter? Compared to her, I'm just a ham actor. Laura's an institution. I've had Martin call off the rehearsal. No use going on now. Right, Willie. I'm sorry, Marion. I know how you wanted to play Juliet. And who says she's not going to play Juliet? Laura, I told you to stay in your room. I have a rehearsal on. Never missed one yet. But Laura, darling... Don't darling me. Get up in your lines. Willie... Who told you to call off this rehearsal? Well, I thought... Well, you stick that, to your doctoring. Uh, Martin's called them again, and I've just posted my bond with equity. So we may as well get on with it. Well, what's the matter? Don't stand there staring at me. Let's begin. I want to hear the balcony scene. Laura, you mustn't do this. Since when does a bouncing juvenile tell me what to do? Step lively now, or I'll, I'll get myself another Romeo. Lily. Yes, sir. That chair quick. I, I want to sit down. While I'm resting a moment, uh, you two go down and pick out your dressing rooms. But just stay clear of number one. That's mine. I'm the star of this show. Just as you say, Laura. Oh, Rollo. Sheila Dale just left for Kansas City to play stock. Gets her name in lights on the marquee. Oh? Well, that's fine. How did she land that? Oh, I pulled a few strings. Wanted her out of New York. I like my villains in my plays, not in my hair. Now run along, run along. And stay out of number one. All right. Come on, Marion. All right. Laura, Uh, I'm going to shoot straight from the shoulder. You can't do this show. You might not live through the opening night. I know it. You're risking your life to make two children fall in love. Yes. And if she plays Juliet the way I tell her, He'll be so head over heels in love by the time the curtain falls, he'll never get over it. But this means your life, Laura. What of it? I've done most things for myself. This once, I'd like to think of them. They're two fine children, Willie, and I love them. Anyway, I want to play one more performance. Just for one night? Yes. I'd like to finish the way I started. Playing a one-night stand. And the curtain comes down the second act of tonight's play in the Little Theater on Times Square. All right, here's a summertime makeup hint for you ladies from Larry Keating. Are you one of those women who does not like to use face powder in the summertime because it seems to cake on humid days, yet you want some kind of makeup on your skin? What's the answer? Well... There's a new answer this summer. It's Magic Touch, Campana's new tinted cream makeup. Magic Touch imparts a fresh, clean look that stays fresh, doesn't cake or become splotchy. Magic Touch doesn't leave your face feeling dry the way some makeups do or greasy the way others do. Magic Touch is so utterly different, so delightfully new. Truly, you'll never know how pretty you can be until you try Magic Touch. Magic Touch, you know comes in a wafer-thin compact in six shades, one just right for you this summer. And it's so easy to apply. You can use it anywhere, anytime, in any climate. 
See how flawless Magic Touch makes your skin appear. See how unmade up your makeup looks when you use Magic Touch. Once you use it, you'll agree when I say you'll never know how pretty you can be until you try Magic Touch. are all in their seats, ready for the last act. And there goes the curtain. Are you cold, Laura? I'll throw this blanket over you. Well, you would fix me a dressing room in the wings. It's your fault if I'm cold. Willie, how did I do? You were glorious, dear. The most brilliant opening night of your career. Oh, I love it. Every minute of it. I only wish I were in the last act, too. <laughs> We packed them in tonight, didn't we? The return of Laura Ravenswood to the stage is not an event to be missed. Willie, you said I wouldn't live to see the end of the play. I wonder if you're right. Maybe I overdid myself. Things seem to be getting further away. I warned you. I'm going to take you home at once. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm staying to the end. I'd rather die right here on the stage than any place I know. The curtain's going up on the last scene. This means I caught, boy. Darling, Martin says they're raving about the show. Oh, you've been immense, Laura. That was the greatest performance of the nurse ever given. You don't need to tell me that. But what do they say about Marion's Juliet? Oh, isn't she wonderful? Oh. She's marvelous. She's... She's... Oh, Laura, I'm in love with her. Have you told her so? Yes. I'm mad about her. I always have been, but I didn't know it. You've done this, Laura. I was a pretty fool, wasn't I? Always have been. Hmm? Oh, great Scott. Willie? Yes? When I die, put a picture of Cupid on my headstone, will you? Miss Ravenswood. Yes? You remember I told you how I was stage manager for your show back in 1918? Yes. I thought you were wonderful then, but what a performance you gave tonight. Oh, thanks, Harry. I appreciate that. I guess we folks have a lot to be thankful for when God sends people like you to us. Well, I just wanted to tell you how I felt. He wouldn't have said that if he knew what a bitter old battle axe I am off stage. Laura, you're as soft as a chicken and always have been for all your bellowing. It's funny, Willie. But tonight has given me something I've wanted to find all my life. And now that I have it, it's too late. I don't blame you for being bitter. I think I'd be that way, too, if someone said, William Smith, you've been a doctor long enough. Now you must stop. I couldn't. And you, who have so much to give, you should have kept on. A great actress belongs to the world. Oh, tonight is made up for everything. And Willie, Rollo makes a fine Romeo. Oh, he's a great actor. Now, don't you tell him that. Open the door. I want to hear him read the speech in the tomb. Ah, oh, dear Julia. Why art thou yet so fair? 
Shall I believe that unsubstantial death is amorous and that the lean and horrid monster keeps thee here in dark to be his paramour? Sarah, are you asleep? No, I'm listening. I just closed my eyes for a moment. I look your last. Arms take your last embrace. And lift. Oh, you. The doors of breath seal with a righteous kiss a dateless bargain to engrossing death. Come, bitter conduct. Come, unsavory guide. Thou desperate pilot. Now at once run on the dashing rocks thy seasick, weary bark. Here's to my love. <laughs> oh, to apothecary. Thy drugs are quick. And thus, with a I die. Say, did you hear him read that speech? What's the man? Shh. Laura. Laura, dear. Oh, I guess she's pretty tired after this night. Yes. She needs to sleep. She's awful quiet. You don't think... No. No. She's just fallen asleep. Guy. It's good to... See her again after all these years. Great girl. Old Lady Shakespeare. Yes. Great girl. She does look awful old, doesn't she? And tired. Guess she's just about through. Who's about through? Laura. You tell that dumb jackass that I may look awful old. But I got more spunk in me than any one of those cream tart stars he's been scraping to for the last ten years. Harry. Hey, yes, Miss Ravenswood. It's the last act over. You're just about. Tell Rollo and Laura I want to see them the minute the curtain falls. Yes, ma'am. Laura. Oh, I feel so weak, Willie. I guess he was right. I've played my last part. Oh, why don't they hurry? There's the curtain. It's a hit, Willie. Listen to the thoughts. Just like old times. Oh, Laura. Laura, they're wild. They won't stop applauding. It's wonderful. Let's go back. Take another call. You burned it. Laura, they're standing on the seats. They're calling for you. She can't go out there. She isn't strong enough. She can't make it. Who says I can't make it? Rollo. Help me off this couch. Laura, will you listen Stand to me? Stand back, Willie. Don't you tell me I can't take a curtain call. Now you watch me. Walk along with me, Rob. You on the other side, Marion. Well, I give up. Sorry, Willie. But there's nothing like good applause to put life into an actress. Let's go, children. Next week, the Little Theater off Times Square invites you to an especially entertaining new play called That Woman in Red, a gay, suspenseful story about an atomic scientist who unintentionally developed a method for selecting winning racehorses. You can bet on That Woman in Red as a winner next week. And ladies, you'll never know how pretty you can be until you try Magic Touch. And now we move out of the theater and into the street. 
is your cab, Mr. First Nighter. Thank you. Good night. Campana's First Nighter program, starring Olin Sule and Barbara Luddy, is a copyrighted radio feature. Tonight's play was pure fiction and did not refer to real people or actual events. National Flag Week is a fitting time for each of us to reflect how fortunate we are that we are Americans. The rights and privileges we as Americans enjoy should inspire us to carry out our duties as citizens to our utmost ability. To serve willingly on juries, vote intelligently, take a genuine interest in community, state, and national affairs. America will always be what we make it, you and I, by our personal interest and our service. This is CBS, where 99 million people gather every week. The Columbia Broadcasting System. From the last week of spring in 1948, Old Lady Shakespeare, from the First Nighter program, and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We take you now from the lights of Broadway to a dirty embankment on a country road. We're going to end tonight's show, as we often do, with a noir detective story. This one from the lineup. Be sure to listen for a familiar voice in an unfamiliar role. It's Howard McNear, Doc Adams on Gunsmoke, as, well, as a bum, but a bum with a good memory. It's an episode called The Check Killer Case, and it comes from March 6th, 1951, CBS, AFRTS, and The Lineup. We take you now to The Lineup. You were off duty. Well, I'm supposed to be quiet, but we're checking on the 211 when we get down the mall. Oh, no identification? Not yet. Been another hour or so. But I'd step in and see what you got. Uh, nothing big. About 35 boys. Well, I got nothing to do until we get an identification. Oh, there's Matt. Yeah, I'll help you. Yeah, I'll see you later. You people out there on the other side of the wire in the audience room, may I have your attention? <laughs> Thank you. My name is Greb, Sergeant Matt Greb. I'll explain the lineup to you. Each of the suspects you will see will be numbered. I'll call off a number, their name, and charge. If you have any questions or identification, please remember the number assigned to the prisoner as I call his name. At the end of each line, when I ask for questions or identification, call out the number. If you're sure or not too sure of the suspect, have him held. The officers who took your name will assist you. They're seated among you. Please be prompt with your questions or identification. When the prisoners leave here, they are sent to the washroom and dressed back into their jail clothes. It makes it quite difficult to bring them back after they leave here. The questions I ask these suspects are merely to get a natural tone of voice, so do not pay too much attention to their answers as they often lie. Bring on the line. Okay, keep it moving. Right over to the end of the station. Hands to your sides. Now turn and face front. Okay, boys, now when you answer my questions, talk up. There's a lot of people out there, and I want you to talk up so they can all hear you. All right, number one, Thomas Lane, breaking and entering. 
Where do you live, Tommy? 3112 Kennedy, upstairs. Don't look at me, Tommy. Look straight ahead, right out at the people there. Yes, sir. You live at 3112 Kennedy, north, south, or what? 3112 South Kennedy. You live alone? No, sir, with my folks. What? With my folks. I know the people out in front can't hear you. Now, come on, talk up. I said I live with my folks. That's better, Tommy. You arrested with anybody? No, sir. Any weapons? Oh, no, sir. I didn't have any weapons. What uh-huh. time was it? Yeah. That's when him, I was officer. Quiet. Yes, yeah, but identification back know. then. Oh, that's the script. Where was it? The yes, Mr. Skip. Number one. That's the boy. How old okay, are you, Okay, we'll have him held at 18. the end of the line. Okay, number two, Frank Lazo, assault. Where do you live, Frank? 913 South Orchard Street. What do you do? I'm a cowboy. What were you doing when you were arrested? I was fighting. I was in a bar fighting. Did you start it? No, Sergeant. Some guy hit a sailor just up and slugged him. Well, who did you hit? The guy that hit the sailor. I got sore when he hit him, so I dropped him. What'd you drop him with? A painted machine. He didn't have no business hitting that sailor. The sailor wasn't doing nothing but having a good time. The man you slugged said the sailor started off. I was standing right there, Sergeant. The sailor wasn't doing nothing. Standing there, having a beer, minding his own business. The guy I slugged started the whole thing. What one? You know the sailor? Yeah, sure. He's my brother. <laughs> okay, number three, Dennis Riley. Drunk and disorderly. Where do you live, Dennis? 214 Old Clack Apartment C, Sergeant. What do you do? Uh, I'm kind of out of work. I ain't been doing nothing for a while. Uh, you married? Sure. What do you think I'm here for? Because you and three other guys caused some trouble. Well, I had a small party, Sergeant. My wife's out of town. I can't do nothing when she's home, so I had a party. Well, you got pretty drunk. Oh, not too much. How long were you drinking? About 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, George Watson, robbery. Where do you live, George? 440 Federal Street. You arrested with anybody? No. Ben. Any weapon? Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, see you a minute. Sure. Well, what is it? Nickel plated? Blue steel or what? Blue steel. What's up? We got something on that 211. Identification? Not yet, but I've got an old tramp downstairs. Says he saw the man killed. This is Sam Rogers, Ben. <laughs> oh, Sam, they call me. Keep your seat, Sam. Yes, yes. Sam says he was in a culvert near the shore road. Yeah, just keeping out of the rain. Man. He uh, saw a car pull off the side and heard a shot. That's right. Yeah, tell me about it, Sam. Well, much to tell. A man got out of the car. This was after the shot, of course. He got out and grabbed the man's legs and dragged him out of the car. Bumpity bump. Oh, he swung him off the road so hard he rolled on down that hill. Just over and over. I just stayed in there watching him roll. Just over and over. You see the man who pulled this guy out of the car and rolled him down the hill? Oh, yes. I saw him. He had to drag this dead fellow right in front of the headlights to get him over the, to the hill there. I saw him kind of clear there in the headlights. How'd you know the fellow was dead? You got him down the morgue, ain't you? You know he was dead when this man rolled him down the hill? Oh, I didn't stick around and find out. <laughs> Took me all this time to get up enough nerve to come in here. So I just kind of walked around thinking about it. Figured I'd better tell you about it. Well, we're glad you did. You couldn't fix me up with a meal, could you? Guthrie. Yeah, oh, wait a minute. Okay, give it to me. Russell Godfrey, 311, Kirby, Rome. Okay, right. 
That's the identification. Russell Godfrey, 311 Kirby Road. That dead fellow? That's right, Sam. I should fix Sam up with a meal and give him a bed. Well, I ain't tired. No, I'm hungry, but I ain't tired. You got any money? What kind of money? You can have the run of the place. You won't mind it. Okay, but I won't like it. I shall have nightmares, sure. I can sure do without this rain. We need it. Yeah. Well, come on, let's get it over with. Yeah. Phew, boy. <laughs> Somebody ought to try to figure out a waterproof cigarette. Russell? Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. I was expecting my husband. I'm Lieutenant Guthrie, Mrs. Godfrey. Lieutenant? And this is Sergeant Greb. Police? That's right. Something's happened. May we come in? Yeah, of course. Now, Mrs. Godfrey, we'd like to ask you a few questions. Question? Yes. Your husband was shot. Oh, no. There's no other way of telling you this. I've got to tell you the truth. You mean someone killed him? Yes, ma'am. Someone shot him. Mrs. Godfrey. Mrs. Godfrey, do you have any friends or a member of the family you'd like us to call? My mother. Yes, call my mother. What's the number, Mrs. Godfrey? Mrs. Klein, Madison, 33446. Mrs. Klein, Madison, 33446? Yes, yes. The phone's in the hall, that door. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry, but it's such a terrible shock. You think you could answer just a couple of questions and we won't bother you for a while? I'll try. We found your husband out on the shore road. He comes home from work that way. Somebody drive him? He have his own car? Oh, yes. He has his own car. Where does he work? He works for Mr. Martin. The Martin Lyons Printing Corporation. He's a salesman. Martin Lyons Printing Corporation. Yeah, that's on the east side, about 45 minutes from here. Uh, what time does he usually get home? About six. Usually about six. I've been worried because I didn't hear from him. I even called the office, but they said he left. Why would anybody want it? The mother's on the way, Ben. <laughs> he was in his own car, man. Oh? Hitchhiker, maybe? Maybe. Why don't you stretch out on the couch, Mrs. Godfrey? Your mother will be right over. All right. Now throw that cover over, man. Sure, sure. There. Now, you okay, Mrs. Godfrey? Yes, thanks. A man? Yeah. As soon as the mother gets here, we'll check on what kind of car he was driving. Put out an APB. Yeah, okay, Ben. And tomorrow morning, I want to go down to the Martin Lyons Printing Company where he works. Okay. Cigarette? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, miserable rain. Yeah. We needed it, though. Lieutenant 
Guthrie? Yes, Mr. Martin. This is Sergeant Graham. Sergeant? How are you, sir? Uh, won't you have a seat? Well, thank you. Now then, what can I do for you? You have a man working for you named Godfrey? Russell Godfrey? Yeah. Nothing wrong? He was killed last night. What? Someone shot him. Took his car. Good grief. Shot him? Deliberately? Very deliberately. I walked downstairs with him, said goodnight. What about his wife? She took it pretty well. He didn't drive away with anybody? No, no, he, he was alone. At least he was when he left me. Have you any idea why anybody would want to kill him? No, I certainly don't. Did he have much money on him? I couldn't say. Any valuables? Anything of value from your company? Well, he had a briefcase. Briefcase? Yes, threw it in the front seat with him. We talked for a minute. And then it started to rain. Have you any idea what was in the briefcase? Just the kit all our sales force used, the sample forms, cards, checks. And what kind of checks? They wouldn't do anybody any good. They'd need the payee's name. Uh, here, I'll show you one. Uh-huh. Uh, besides the signature, they'd, they'd need to be signed by the officers of the various companies whose signatures are acceptable to the paying bank. You mean you print these up for a lot of firms? Hundreds of firms. Each have their own color, markings, and uh, so on. I see. Well, uh, who could cash these checks besides the banks? Uh, I mean, uh, don't they have regular check-cashing services? Oh, yes. There are a number of them in the city. Lieutenant, you don't think Godfrey was killed for these checks? Yes, I do. There are a lot of people who work pretty hard trying to make crime pay off. Enough, then. Enough? Up to here, Molly. Coffee? Yeah, there won't be any trouble. Don't be silly. I'll help, honey. Oh, you have a cigarette. Now, look, now look Molly. We'll do the dishes tonight. You'll both sit right there and oh, relax. For Pete's sake. Do you like to eat over here? But how many times? Have a cigarette. Relax, Ben. You're out class. <laughs> okay. This is no trouble for me at all. Ah, wonderful dinner, Molly. You can come again. Hey, Matt, hmm? we ought to help one night. Oh, I help plenty of nights. What do you think I asked you over for? I heard that. Oh, you did, huh? Yes, I did, huh? <laughs> uh, the cream on the table? No, no, the sugar is, though. Honey, do you want to have coffee in the other room? You want to. Bites are on, Ben. Sure. Yeah, we'll have it in the other room, honey. Okay, you go on. I'll bring it in. Yeah, it's nearly eight and they started, eh? Uh, sit over there, Ben. <laughs> Always guarding your chair, huh, man? Oh, no, Ben. You <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I was joking. Right yeah. us. Who's fighting? Some of the I don't best know. In the game. Second bout of the evening features. Oh, it's you, David. And here they are on the way. Features Wilbur Jones and John Montague, lightweight. Is that loud enough, Montague's had 11 uh, A little more. Here. Lost three, one six by knockout. Okay. Well, okay. lost yep. two and one five by knockout. Well, the fight's on. And there's Jones with a long left. Montague takes it on his elbow and counters with his own left, high on the head of Jones. Yes? Both Jones and Montague have yes. always been crowd pleasers. Ben, for you. No, Ben. It's the precinct. Oh, thanks, Molly. And Montague takes the left. Hello, this is Guthrie. Both of these boys yeah. have got a lot of respect for each other, and they're staying away. Yeah, all right, Clyde. We'll be right down. Better hold the coffee, honey. I just poured it back in the pot. Jones it up the corner. <laughs> 
Hello, Ben. Sorry to drag you out. No, that's okay, Corn. This is Mr. Webb, Lieutenant Guthrie, Sergeant Grebb. Hello, Hello, Mr. Webb. Mr. Webb is president of the firm whose name was cut into the checks. Oh, just one check cash? That's right, Lieutenant, yes. Here it is, Ben. Uh-huh. And which one of your men cashed the check? Uh, we questioned the teller. He doesn't remember the man too well. Thinks he might identify him if he saw him again. It made out to Arthur Fisher. No one on your payroll by that name, Mr. Webb? No, no, sir. Two hundred and fifty-eight dollars. Deductions and everything. He did a good job. Yeah, too good. Somebody's certainly familiar with Mr. Webb's business. We're running a check on all the employees. Uh-huh. Have you seen Mr. Martin and Princey's? Yeah, we're doing the same with all the employees in his shop. How do you spot this as a phony? Well, Baxter's a check-cashing service called me. Baxter had read about that man being killed and the check stolen. He knew our payday and remembered it wasn't today, and so Mr. Baxter called me. Oh, whoever cashed that thing certainly got careless. Doesn't look like it was planned so well after all. It doesn't make sense. Looks like a perfect forgery. But to make a mistake of cashing it on the wrong day, he might, might have gotten away with it if he'd gone in with a lot of other chairs. Yeah, sure stop me. Oh, excuse me. Why? Yeah, he's right here. See you, Ben. Thanks. Got him. Yeah? Yeah, where? Okay, right. Got Godfrey's stolen car spotted. Parking lot on West Colfax. There's Asher. Car's right over here, Ben. You want to talk to the attendant? Yeah. Briggs? Yes, sir? How long ago did the man park that car? About 20 minutes. Officer on the beat spotted it. Mm. Just one man, son? Yes, sir, just one man. He told me to watch it because there was some suitcases in it. Three of them. The maps and the glove compartment. Mm, taking a trip. Might explain why that check was cashed on the wrong day. Let's go take a look. Mister. Yeah? That's him. Here he comes. Now, don't point. He spotted us, Ben. He's running. Asher, run that way. He's behind those cars. Look out. He's got a gun. Circle that way, Matt. Right. Come on, give it up. You're surrounded. You can't make it. Throw your gun out. Okay, blow him up. Ben. Yeah? He's had it. It's bad enough staying in the tank, but it's coming down here. Yeah, well, uh, we need an identification, Sam. <laughs> Did I get it? We want to know if this is the man you saw pull the other one out of the car and roll him down the hill. Yeah, okay. Roll it out, Charlie. Well, 
What do you mean, what do we do? I don't know what we do, but... Well, what do you got, Asher? Here's the guy's personal effects. Driver's license in the wallet. Name's Bishop, Frank Bishop. Check the files, no package on him. And what about the FBI? Oh, we're waiting for a kickback now. Mm. Well, nothing much here. Well, how do you think he figures? No guy's gonna pull a gun like that unless he's mixed up in something that might get him a lot of years. You want to check that address on the license? Seven seven eight and a half North Spring. Yeah. Le- Wait a minute. What's the matter, Ben? That address. What about it? Funny. That address. It's familiar. Now, where the devil have I seen it? Seven seven eight and a half North Spring. Doesn't do anything for me. Where are those lists on the employees working for the check cashing firms? You put them in the file. Do you want them? Yeah. Give a couple of sheets to Asher. You take a couple and we'll check them. Oh, oh. Yeah? Now, here's the FBI kickback and the guy in the morgue van. Got a record. Name's Frank Bishop, all right. Arrested in 1933 on a forgery rap using the mails. Okay, Quine. Bring it in, will you? Right. Nothing on this one. Hey, Ben. Huh? Here it is. The Martin Lyons Printing Company. Jules Harrison, 778 North Spring. I knew I'd seen it. Could be Bishop's roommate. Uh, here's a kickback, Ben. Oh, thanks. Uh, take a couple of men and go over and check on 778 North Spring. Man named Jules Harrison. Works for Martin Lyons Printing. Want to talk to him? Correct. Aren't we going? We're going over to the printing company. I got a hunch he's still working for them. Asher? Yep. Go down and get old Sam. We'll want an identification. Go right in. Mr. Martin's expecting you. No, thank you. Let's go, Sam. <laughs> yeah, okay. Oh, hello, Dan. Oh, Mr. Martin. Mr. Martin, this is Sam Rogers. How do you do? Uh, hey, hey. Sam saw the man who killed Godfrey. We think maybe the man we want is working for you. Jules Harrison. Sure? Of course. He's been with the company for nearly ten years. Well, uh, we'd like for you to send for him, please. All right. Mr. Williams. Would you ask Jules Harrison to come in, please? Yes, sir. What makes you think it was Harrison? Well, we spotted Godfrey's stolen car in a parking lot. The man who was driving it put up a fight and was killed. When we checked his address, we found it matched Harrison's. Maybe this other man was the one who killed Godfrey. No. Old Sam here says he wasn't. That's right, yes, you're absolutely right. That stiff in the morgue wasn't the one who killed that fellow and rolled him down the hill. No, sir. Oh, no, that's for sure. He didn't do Yes. Mr. Harrison is here. Send him in. Now, Sam, take a good look at him. Okay, Mr. You want to see me, Mr. Martin? Yes, come in, Harrison. Yes, sir. Yes, sir? That's the fellow, Lieutenant. That's him. That's him. You're under arrest, Harrison. What do you mean I'm under arrest? I'm holding you on suspicion of murder. That's the fellow. He pulled the guy out of the car and he rolled him down the hill. Now, wait a minute. Stay right there. Yeah, yeah, that's him, all right. These gentlemen are from the police, Harrison. So what? I haven't done anything. You know a man named Frank Bishop? Oh, I live with him, but why haven't... You know a man named Russell Godfrey? Sure, he used to work here. He got... Wait a minute, you don't think... Frank Bishop had Godfrey's car. 
Bishop is dead. What's that got to do with me? Bishop just lived with me. One of you made a mistake and cashed one of those checks on the wrong day. I think it was Bishop. I think he got scared and tried to skip town. I don't care what you think. I didn't have anything to do with it. This man saw you roll Godfrey's body out of his car. That's right. That's right. I saw you. You pushed him. Just pushed him right over that hill. We think you planned this whole thing with Bishop. You get the checks, Bishop forges them. You've been working here ten years, haven't you? Yeah. You'd know just what to do with those checks if you had a good forger to help you. How long have you known Bishop? He's been living with me for the last year. I took him in to help with the rent. He should never have cashed that check. Why did he cash it? I didn't mean to kill Godfrey. I waited on the road and he picked me up. I didn't mean to kill him. Bishop got scared and needed some money. All that planning and he ruined it just by cashing that lousy check. Okay. Let's go down to the station. Yeah, I guess it's... Just as much my fault. I, I didn't mean to kill Godfrey. Things like that happen, I guess, but I didn't mean to. Okay, let's go. Jail? Don't waste your young fella. Come on, come on. It's nearly four o'clock. We serve dinner in an hour. The lineup. Where before you pass the innocent, the vagrant... The thief, the murderer. Listen again next week when we again bring you The Lineup. May I have your attention, please? <laughs> you people out there on the other side of the wire in the audience room, may I have your attention, please? <clears throat> Thank you. My name is Greb, Sergeant Matt Greb. I'll explain the lineup to you. Each of the suspects you will see will be numbered. I'll call off a number, their name, and charge. If you have any questions or identifications, Please remember the number assigned to the prisoner as I call his name. At the end of each line, when I ask for questions or identification, call out the number. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. The Check Killer Case, an episode of the lineup from the late winter of 1951 featuring a pre-gunsmoke Howard McNear as a material witness. It brings us almost to the end of this edition of the big broadcast. We're going to close with one last salute to the Broadway Theater, scheduled to reopen this fall. There are many, many versions of that peon to the Great White Way from one of the greatest movies about the commercial theater, 1933's 42nd Street. That's the movie in which Warner Baxter says to Ruby Keeler, You're going out a youngster, but you've got to come back a star. The rendition we've chosen of the song is by those early radio stars, Connie, Vet, and Martha, the Boswell sisters. And we picked it because it's the one that comes the closest to being an actual lullaby. It's a recording made for Decca Records in London, England, on July 19, 1935, of Al Dubin and Harry Warren's 
The Lullaby of Broadway. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Michael Kidd and Kenny Pirog, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody.